Derek and Mike podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you being here. Hit us up on Twitter at Derek and Mike pod or on our website, Derek and My name is Mike. And this is my boy, Derek. What's up, Mike? What's up, everybody? What's up, Rob? Derek, we got a special guest with us here today. Rob Shapiro. How are you, Rob? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Very good, man. Good. We're stoked to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Likewise. So Rob is, and I won't uh, pretend to define you, but what I know about Rob is that you are a man who wears many hats, it sounds like. I am. Usually they are fedoras because I am that <laughs> rare person who cannot pull off many other hats. Stylish. <laughs> uh, so on your, on your Twitter description, you've got writer, singer, narrator, and my favorite, procreator. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> How many kids do you have? Four. Whoa. Yeah. I sit in awe of you, sir. <laughs> my loins. My loins are repopulating the earth. Uh, yeah. My Man. oldest is my oldest is uh will be graduating from law school uh, wow. in uh in May, and my youngest is in first grade. So wow. I am exhausted. Yeah, yeah quite a range. spectrum of offspring there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yes. I have a I have a daughter in second grade. No, I'm sorry, first grade. Um, she's seven, and that that's all I got is a single one. I'm a it's little a old lot of... to have a one in that's <laughs> seven, but <laughs> so it's, it seems to be a trend. I'm a lot old to have one that who is who is seven as well. But what are you gonna do? I actually yeah, look at it, I look at it this way: like I spaced it out in such a way that by the time my youngest children no longer want to be on my lap, I will have grandchildren who will want to be on my lap. So I will have a lap in constant use. Brilliant. Which I as think soon is... as I get old enough to shun you and start uh, being too cool for dad, then there's a new line of, of uh, grandkids uh, fresh and ready to come over and hang out and Exactly. Play. Well, you know, more children to trick. Which I think is the fun of having children, because <laughs> that's the real joy of it. That's what all the uh, sleepless nights and all the work and the poopy diapers. That's what it all boils down to. Is yeah. the repayment is um, having little people you can trick and also get you things. A- absolutely, get me some gum, will you? Yeah, <laughs> you know, remote what? sitting over there. Hey, grab that for daddy, will you? Where's Where's mom? This is my standard thing, and the kids now like I can't even get away with the first part of it. Like, oh, where's mom? And it's a very specific thing that I do. It starts with an exhale. Yeah. I didn't want to have to tell you this, but your mother's been abducted by aliens. <laughs> <laughs> and normally it will get to the point where I'll say, you know, she's being vivisected right now. They're probing <laughs> They're like, her violently. That? And they'll, you know, I, I, I will get to the point where I just go, and they go, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll just continue. No, oh, yeah, I thought, thought tricking might be elf on the shelf, but uh, you, you're taking it uh, to the next level there. I like that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> give them hell. You, you oh got to sharpen gosh. their skills early, though. You're right. That's, yeah. That has to happen. You got to. 
No, anytime someone comes to them with like really bad news and it begins with a sigh, they're just going to instantly go, "Oh, I'm checking out. This is this is BS." <laughs> we recognize oh, that. Man. man, that's funny. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine. Like, we've got my wife and I have two young boys, a one year old and a three year old. So we're not even into the school years yet. We're barely getting started. Oh. And uh, anytime we see someone with with multiple, even two, blows me away. But three or four or more kids running around, I just, I just. Uh, I marvel at those people. Like, how do you comb your own hair? How do you do anything with that many kids? It's uh, it's a wonder to me. I would like to point out that you are both on camera and I am not. <laughs> oh, is, oh, oh. There is Hence a reason the, uh, How do you comb this. your own hair? <laughs> Answer to that is you can't see me right yeah, now. That's, right. Why do you think I'm a man who does voice work? <laughs> oh, man. Voice work is a ton of fun. I've dabbled. And that's probably the root of my interest in wanting to talk to you is it's really cool to talk to a real pro, um, someone who's doing a lot of work, because um, I've dabbled a little bit and I love the industry. It's so much fun. I'd love to do more of it, um, especially audiobooks. So I have a lot of interest there. I can't wait to talk to you about it. Well, ask away. Well, okay. So uh, I looked up your... Um, well, it won't be called a discography, a bookography, or uh, the list of all your books, all the books you've done on at least on Audible, and you've got over a hundred and fifty books on there. Yeah, um, that's mind-boggling, man. That sounds like it would take a lifetime to record. Well, there are people. I mean, I'm I'm really pretty selective about what I do, and because I, you know, also I have four kids and a marriage. And I have lots and lots of other obsessions. I'm also a musician, and I, I stupidly really love old cars and guitars and studio stuff. So there's a lot that, that grabs my attention. There are a lot of narrators who will do 50 books a year. I can't wow. do that. I can't function that way. So I'll, I'll maybe do – last year was my biggest. I did like 35 last year. But generally I'll do you know somewhere around 20. In a year, okay. Um, all right, which so is, one or two a month. Yeah, trying to all keep right. it kind of low key so I can get all my other stuff done as well. Um, but now, it's, when you do, God, sorry, when you do one or two a month, are those typically longer form? Um, do you kind of try to keep the the projects you're going after within a certain total hour range or total length range? Because there sure is a big. Um, there's a big fluctuation of a lot of audiobooks out there from just you know one or two hours up to thirty plus hours. Yeah, it it really depends. Honestly, I'll take anything that I find interesting. Um, well, that's really cool because that was kind of one of the questions I want to dig into. Is like, how do you pick projects? Uh, if I'm really interested in it, even if it's not a big money making project, it's like, oh, I'm gonna do that. Okay. Just because it's like it's something that I'm I'm a lifelong bookworm, always have been, and I have really wide interests. So if it's like I did this book uh, at the end of the year called Aftermath, which is a book about what happened in Germany from 1945 to 1955. Just okay. how did they recover from the war? Um, now, granted. For most people, that would not be a fascinating subject. But to me, it's like, well, I would read this anyway. I may as well get paid to read it out loud and be excoriated by native German speakers on how bad my pronunciation is. Both goals were achieved. <laughs> that, no, that's such an interesting time period to think about because it's really largely ignored. 
um, where there's so many books and movies and everything about World War II in general, but it seems like most of them are going to focus on the war itself, yeah. the European theater, the Pacific theater, mainly the American involvement, uh, and then our allies. And and when it does dive into Germany and, it, and Italy and Japan, it's just from the enemy perspective and how and how much we kick their butt or how specific battles unfolded. Um, but yeah, the, the rebuilding or reconstruction of Germany after, after the war is something that I know next to nothing about. That is an interesting topic. I, I knew next to nothing about it too. And it really was a lot about the social aspect of it, the people, you know, because there were people who were obvious resistors to Nazi Germany um, and they were punished as heavily as the people who were ardent Nazis who had caused it, sure. the deprivations, the just the logistics of rebuilding, of sure. rebuilding communications networks, of rebuilding a society. What happens to, to culture when all of the buildings that housed the culture are in rubble? Where do you go for a meal? Where do you send your kids to school? Yeah, Where do you I mean, grocery it, shop? Yeah. It, and then how do you deal with politics? How do you deal with with people who, you know, with, how do you deal with denazification? Um, so it was just, it was a fascinating, fascinating book. So for me, like, oh, I'm absolutely going to do that. I also did a really long uh, history of Led Zeppelin, which also oh, cool. for me is like, well, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, another book, I would be consuming this anyway, and yeah. you're going to pay me for it? Fantastic. Yeah. And then there are certain authors that I, I do a lot of their work and they just, for whatever reason, they resonate with me and we work together really well and it's incredibly enjoyable. That's really cool. So that is interesting to me, like how new projects, um, how new opportunities come about. Are you out viewing open job listings or, or you know, through th things like I know about ACX, I've used that before, where you can kind of scroll through a bunch of projects, which are basically publisher saying, hey, here's a bunch of books we're going to look for narrators on you can, uh, you know, submit auditions for, or how do new book opportunities present themselves to you? At this point, most of the producers and the publishing houses know me. I'm a, you know, I'm a known entity. And so they'll know, they'll know what my sort of proclivities are, what my strengths are, and they'll just go ahead and call me. Or That's email cool. me and say, I have this book. Are you interested? Um, I don't, you know, it's not that I'm lazy. It's just that I don't, I don't spend a lot of time like digging and scratching. Um, I have yeah. a lot of things that I want to do in my, and, and part of them just requires sitting and not really dreaming, but sort of sitting and kind of ideating. You know, I'm a songwriter and and uh, you know record producer and all that, and so making a record requires a lot of sitting and sort of staring at the window yeah. and writing and just private, quiet time to do it. Um, yeah. So I, I've just sort of set my life up to to be able to do what I want, and then just do it. W That's was really there cool. a time where like you, because I know a lot of uh, people that are successful, it seems like, you know, obviously it doesn't happen overnight and it does happen through a lot of hard work. Was there a time where like you had to do a lot of pro bono or kind of like break even work in order to like get 
uh, most of your audiobooks out there so that um, that actually provided your marketing or or how, what, oh, what is absolutely. that process that took place? Absolutely. I mean, the the long story short is that prior to this, you know, I went to theater school and I I did voice work way back when. And then I, you know, I'm a musician, so I moved to New York City from Minneapolis in the early 90s to join this band. And when I moved there, I realized very quickly I was not going to be able to afford to do really fancy things like eat food and have shelter (laughs) as an actor and musician. I had to figure out a way to earn a living. So a friend of mine, I'm making a long story really long. (laughs) A friend of mine said, just temp. And I was like, temp, what do you mean? And she said, well, go and go and like go to a temp agency and just temp. You'll make like, and at the time, this was astonishing. She was like, you'll make $14 an hour. And I had never heard of such money in my life. So I made up a resume and, and tempt. Um, and then over time, I just built up, for whatever reason, I built up a set of skills, and then I had a child. Unexpectedly, my first child was was a, a surprise gift. And um, all of a sudden, it wasn't, it was like, oh, I really need to earn a living. Yeah, This can't be like temping. And eventually, I started my own firm. So I, part of the reason I started it was because I didn't really want to work for anybody else. I was still a musician. And I've always had kind of the Charles Ives view of music. If you really want to do what you want to do, you have to pay for it yourself. Mm-hmm. So it was like, okay, not only do I have to support a family, but I also have to support my my art life and my art habit. Um, so the business became successful and pretty consistent. And then two things happened at once. I got divorced, and the economy completely collapsed. So all of the projects that I'd been doing, these were, these were software and technology projects. All of those projects completely went on pause. Every company and corporation that I worked for just hit the red button and said, we're not spending any money right now until we know what the future looks like. So I went from making a very good living to all of a sudden having nothing. And one day I just sat down with a yellow legal pad and started making a list of everything I could do for a living, everything I could do professionally that I could earn some money doing. And two things jumped out. I'd spent a lifetime in studios and I had done voice work and I'd wanted to do voice work. And I looked at those things and I thought, I mean, I had stuff on that list like sanding wood because I've refinished some of my guitars. Right. You know, wrapping cables, things like that. Um, And I looked at the list and I just thought, oh, I should maybe think about going back into voice work. But I live in L.A., so that's really a highly competitive market. Maybe I could narrate audiobooks. And just then, my then-girlfriend, now wife, came out into the garden where I was sitting and doing this. And I, she said, what are you doing? And I said, how would you feel 
if I abruptly stopped going after business stuff and just went after audiobooks and narrating audiobooks? And she just looked at me quizzically and she said, oh, do you think you can make a living doing that? And I said, I don't see why not. Other people do. So that was the decision. And then wow. it was just it was just going, okay, how do I how do I make this work? Right. And because I've done other things successfully, looking at a goal a long-term goal and figuring out sort of the iterative steps to achieve along the way to that goal was pretty simple. I find that interesting that, that um, you know, this is a little small thing, but the fact that you're saying like you wrote it down and you wrote it on a list because, uh, you know, you can sit there and wherever you are and just think hypothetically what it is that you can do. But uh, it's, I've heard multiple people tell me this, that when you actually write something down on a pad of paper, it kind of makes it more real. Um, was that kind of your inspiration to, to write those things down like that or? I'm, well, because I was in software and technology, I was very used to writing things down. Um, and I did find it like it's like a physical manifestation of you can see it's physically right in front of you. Yeah. And it's like it's it's the difference between doing a puzzle mentally and doing a puzzle in front of you. You have the pieces there and you can start to move things around and certain patterns will jump out. And that's exactly right. what happened. I mean, right. I really did not know how I was going to earn a living at that point. It was, I was like applying for jobs at grocery stores where six months earlier I had been in boardrooms. It was a really weird time. Um, kind of a real shuffling of the cards. And kind of a, in retrospect, I imagine it's kind of a cool opportunity to reinvent yourself instead of just the trajectory of of – opportunity after opportunity after opportunity compiling on itself, then you end up in a place where you're going like, how did I get here? And is this really where I want to be? But when all that just goes away and you have this kind of opportunity to, or this necessity of rethinking everything from scratch is in a lot of ways a blessing to where you can just kind of take everything in a direction that makes sense for you. And it oh. sounds like that's just a really neat, simplified way of, of boiling Absolutely. it down and figuring that out. Absolutely. It was terrifying. I'm not going to lie. I mean, there were, there were some sure. moments where it was like, I, I'm literally losing everything I have spent my life building. Um, but I, I also realized this was just a phenomenal opportunity that you rarely get. And yeah. after that, I remember saying to, to friends of mine, as, as rough as this period is, it is a great time to be me. Um, it's cool to recognize that because I think that's sort of – situation uh hits a lot of people harder than it sounds like it hit you like you 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 appreciated the gravity of it but you did look at it as an opportunity even at the time that's cool well it was there was no other way you know it was either look at it that way or sink yeah so you know again yeah. there was there was an element of you know i could i could make it sound like really heroic but it was also like sink or swim yeah um what else and, was on that list? Uh, anything else that you just totally crossed off later or, or ignored completely? Well, it was just more things involved in technology. There were a yeah. lot of things involved in, you know, I'd been, I'd been a project manager and sort of product owner, what we now call a product owner in sort of modern parlance. At that point for 10 years, um, I had interfaced with, with CEOs, heads of corporate communications, 
I had done these really large campaigns for very large corporations. So it was like, well, I could go into consultancy, but then it was like, I looked at it, it was like, but I don't like any of that. That yeah. I fell into that because it was it was the path of least resistance, and it seemed really fun at the time. But I realized pretty quickly that it was still kind of playing a role. When I first did it, I mean, I, I'll, uh, this is a pretty funny story, but when I when I so I moved to New York, right, and I, I had this conversation about getting a uh, about a, a temp agency. So I go to the first temp agency, and I had made up a resume. I made up skills. I made it. She said, say you know these software things. I had never touched any of them. <laughs> um, and I was supposed to do it, but I'm like 25, and I'm not going to do that. you know. So I go to this agency, and they said, well, great. You know, your resume looks great. Um, so we're just going to test you on some of this software and see how you do. And I mean, Cold sweat of cold yeah. sweats of all time, like, right? Oh no! I'm like, oh god, what have I done? Because <laughs> I'd never seen any of this. It was just words, you know. Should I run for the door now, or yeah. should I try this? So they put me in this little cubby. This is 1993, okay. March of 93. So it's I'm on a Mac two, which is like a little. I mean, it's so ancient looking now. Yeah, basically um, a word processor, right? Yeah, but it was it had the first operating system using icons. Okay. So I sat down and I had enough rudimentary knowledge of a computer that I knew the computer is not its own sentient being. It is only going to do what I tell it to do. So let me see if I can figure out what I'm supposed to be telling this thing to do. So I just looked at all the icons and then I went through all the menus. And the questions were, and then I just started the test. And the questions were like, if you were going to cut and paste something, how would you do it? And so I thought, well, I would probably choose the cut, which is either the scissors thing or the thing that says cut, and then paste. They're like, wow, he's brilliant. (laughs) That seems like a reasonable answer. So I finish, I bring it in, and they're like, okay, well, you know. We'll call you. We'll let you know if you have anything. Meanwhile, I'm thinking I've got to go to like I've got to find another agency and just pretend like this never happened. Yeah. And I was staying with my sister who lived in New York, and I got a call that afternoon. We have a job for you. I'm like you're kidding. <laughs> like no, you did great on your test. <laughs> oh, uh, okay. Um, we'd like you to work at. Citibank's Wall Street headquarters, can you be there tomorrow? It's a three-week assignment. And it's fourteen fifty an hour. And I mean, it was literally like they were like, and here are the keys to the kingdom for you. Wow. So I said, sure. And I said to my sister, like, I, I need a costume. <laughs> like, I've got a suit. I can do that part. But I need like a briefcase or something. She was like, all right, let me let me figure something out. So... <laughs> She gets me this briefcase. In the briefcase was a spent Mac foundation makeup thing um, and a pair of mirrored round sunglasses with one ear missing. And nice. that was it. <laughs> and a pen. <laughs> so but you look I, very official carrying it around, yeah. I'm sure. So I get on, you know, I get on the, the subway in my little suit and go down to Wall Street the, the next day 
And I'm walking and I'm carrying this briefcase. I, I'm the only person, obviously, who knows what's in this thing. And I'm like, this is a role. This is just, you know, I went to theater school. I yeah. am playing a role. So I'm going to just play this role. And I go up to Citibank at 111 Wall. And the first thing, <laughs> I like sit down. And they said, you know. This is where you're going to, this is what you'll do, blah, 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 blah. Okay, great. And then as the woman's leaving, she's like, oh, by the way, um, it's a Watts line, which I don't know if anybody remembers what a Watts line was, but it was a way to call long distance for free. Like they would just buy long distance and you could just call wherever. Okay. We have a Watts line, so just go ahead and, and you know, if you need to make a phone call, you just dial in line and go out. It's like, okay, thank you very much. Great. Thank you. And as soon as she was out of here, like calling all my friends in Minneapolis, guess where I am? <laughs> You're never going to believe this. I'm playing a businessman on Wall Street. This is fantastic. Um, oh anyway, so yeah, it was just, you know, I didn't want to play that role anymore. Yeah. I, I yeah. really loved doing, like, I loved doing projects. I loved doing, like, figuring out the logic of a really large project was incredibly fun and incredibly challenging and really gratifying. But dealing with like business people and people always trying to rip you off and, and you know, contracts and this and that, it just finally was like, none of this is worth it. And I'm spending all of my time, almost all of my time now dealing with this. I mean, we had, I had clients who would, who would, I had great clients, like any business. You have great clients, and then there were clients that were that were terrible. That you would do a project for them, and you would have a contract, and they would just break the contract. And then you'd say, you've broken the contract. We need to be paid. We need this, that, and the other. And they would say, oh, well, we're declaring bankruptcy. So we need you to renegotiate. I figured ways around almost all of those, but it was just a pain in the ass. Yeah, you know? yeah. And something that just ends up, yeah, not feeling um, consistent with what you truly care about inside. So then, yeah, it all just becomes robotic, autonomous kind of things that you spend most of your life doing. And yeah. at the end of the day, yeah, then you just kind of feel, um, what am I doing? Is this really what I want to do? Like, sure, I'm making money and buying food, but is that the goal? Yeah. Is this what I, is this what I, when I set out into the world, is this what I set out to do? Yeah. And that was the thing. It was like, this is not what I, uh, and going back to acting and going back to like my theater life, that's what I set out to do. That's what that, I wanted. And sorry to cut you off of that. That that must have had a big impact, I would imagine, too, in the audiobooks because I, I took some improv uh when I lived in LA. I don't live in LA any longer, but um it really gave a lot of life to my speech, um, just to, uh, it made me really, uh, uh, be more theatrical. And, um, you know, I noticed like in some of these audio books, like that, you really have to kind of project that. Is, is that what you feel too, that you kind of project every, that, every audio book? Yeah. Every audio book has got its own character. Even if it's a nonfiction title, it has a character and it is still a performance. Um, and one of the things I really love about it is that it is a really direct theatrical experience. It is just your mouth and the listener's ear. And that's the entire theater. So you have to not just be the voice of the book, 
you have to be the proscenium, the props, the setting, the scenery, every character, every little bit of it. And you have to find a way of, it's a lot like magic or religion, which is which are both forms of theater to me, in, in that this thing is imagined with such nuance and such clarity that it's the reaction against that that gives it its relief and its and its imagery to the viewer or the listener. Um, meaning that... Yeah. When, when you're preparing for a new book, when you decide to take on a new project, and it's, and it's a big project, um, and you're, you're deciding how to approach it or how to capture the, the feeling of the book, the characters in it, or just the whole, the whole essence of what the book is, what's your process look like for... Um, capturing that or, or approaching it do you read the entire book and then start do you read ahead a few chapters and then go like what's that process look like well it's different for for different kinds of books um nonfiction, it's a good I, you always want to read ahead before you before you narrate but nonfiction, because you know generally what the arc is going to be it's nonfiction. you don't have to read to the the whole book to the end before you start um but there will be certain things that are going to be clues. Like on a nonfiction, if it's a really, if it's a really difficult subject, either emotionally difficult or intellectually difficult for the listener to grasp, you're going to want to take, I'm going to want to take a tone that's very sort of arm around the shoulder. Like, I'm going to make this super easy for you. You just want to, like, as, to be as conversational and as loose as possible. That also really helps if the language of the book is really sort of stentorian and has this kind of, you know, I am at a day of speaking now. You just want to deflate as much of that as you can so that it's inviting to the listener and the listener just sort of loses the sense that you are reading to them and you're just telling them a story. Gotcha. And convincing them of sort of the, the perspective of this book. For fiction... The way I always do it, you have to read the whole book. And any narrator who's been doing this for a while will tell you the same. We've all been bitten once. <laughs> everybody's everybody's gotten burned once. Yeah. Where you'll be doing a character, you're like, I got this. I read the first two chapters. I know where this is going, blah, blah, blah. And you get two-thirds of the way through the book, and the one you've been narrating as a southerner is French. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they just throw out, oh, and yeah. by the way, he's uh, he's Creole. You're like, ah, yeah. shit. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, yeah, that's funny. Or yeah. he turns out to be the murderer, and you should have been kind of uh, alluding to that in the way you're presenting him in the book, in the early parts of the book or something. My My whole thing with it is I really, for most books, the characters in the book don't know their characters in a book. This is their lives. So for it to read, you have to be able to navigate sort of that line and really fill in each character. And, and the way that I typically do it is as I read them, I'll assign each character somebody I know really well, a family wow. member, a really close friend, somebody who's like their kind of archetype reminds me of this character. And so 
when I'm doing the character, I just, I'm them. I know them really well. I know them from the inside out. And then it's just about reacting and just like any other piece of theater, it's just about walking into a situation and reacting to it in character. And it can be different with every read. That's a really cool approach. You know, it makes me think too, and I... I have to admit, I haven't listened to any of your fiction titles. I've listened to three of your nonfiction titles. And um, you're not necessarily playing characters, at least in most nonfiction titles. Um, you, you know, you a lot of quotes and that sort of thing. But in your fiction titles, where you really are playing different characters, um, I hear a lot of audiobook narrators approach those sorts of pieces differently, where some people... Some narrators don't really change their tone a whole lot. They speak every character voice in their own natural voice with maybe a slight variation. And other ones really dig in and add an accent or raise the pitch of their voice for a female character or that sort of thing. What's your... Oh, Mrs. Higginbottom! Yeah, (laughs) What are you doing in my garden? (laughs) What's your approach on that? Do you like to kind of stay fairly neutral? And and how do you you see that? It's a little difficult for me because I have this super low, rumbly, basso profundo voice. So it's pretty tough for me to be like, yes, hi, I'm an eight-year-old child. (laughs) Um, So for me, it's really about kind of a little bit of both. I will alter – I have a – I think the biggest – the biggest sin that you can do as an audiobook narrator is to pull the listener out. I, I feel this way about theater in general, acting in general. Yeah. If the audience sees the strings moving, sees the scenery moving in and out, can see all the sort of joins and all the, the you know, the work, you're not doing your job. What you're doing is you're showcasing you. My job is to is to get out of the way and have the listener hear the book and sort of experience the life of these characters. So believability and not 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 like being dazzling are two things that, you know, you have to find the balance for. Um because like I said, the biggest sin is pulling them out of the book. If I've always looked at it this way. You have to be the right size for the book. And every book has mm-hmm. a different size. Um, it's just like any other performance. If you're playing in a really big hall, you got to be big. If you're playing in a very small space, really subtle things work. It just depends. You have to be the right size for the character and for the book. If you're too big, all they're going to hear is you, and they're not going to hear the book. If you're too small, they're not going to hear anything. So you got to be. You just you have to thread that needle just right. That's an That's interesting perspective about getting out of the way because really what you're doing is you're reading the words that an author wrote and that's the that's what people are listening to but you're you are the vehicle that is delivering that um that piece of art to them so yeah you really want to make sure that you're delivering it to them in a way that keeps the focus on the content and not yourself as the voiceover um that that's an interesting perspective and that that is that does seem like it's a difficult line to to dance on because you you can't go too much one way or the other. 
Well, well and it's like that, like he's becoming the character too, right? I mean, you, you're losing yourself essentially. I would imagine, right? It, yeah, I mean, absolutely. In the in the ultimate way, yeah. You know, I going back to I think I'm gonna uh, Mike has probably heard me talk about this so much, but improv and uh, and doing a, a character show. I did a character show one time, and I was practicing, you know, for weeks on this one character, and I went out and I did it. And luckily, like when I hit the stage, I came alive and I lost myself and I became that character. And I, I can't describe how freeing that was. It was just such a freeing. And and, and I, I didn't realize that, um, you know, audiobook narrating is kind of along the same lines. But that's really interesting that you're you're uh, telling me this kind of you're telling us the secret sauce here really well it's it's exactly i mean it really is it's it's the thrill of being able to discover all of these different sort of personae and people that you really do have access to you know our, our choices in life granted while we make certain choices we didn't have the choice of perhaps where we were born of of you know where we were at any given point in our lives which which have and has enormous implications into the person we become right so i could be this is also how i look at politics i i could be i'm i'm rob shapiro i live in southern california i have this history but what would be the difference if i was rob shapiro but i'd grown up on a farm or i lived in iowa or I lived, you know, in the Deep South. Um, and those possibilities exist. And I think all one has to do as, it's a, you know, I say all one has to do, it's, it's a pretty large task, but, but at the same time it's not, is to sort of be understanding and empathetic of other people and to recognize that, there are ways you could have been any number of other versions of yourself, and they all sort of exist. You just have to be able to to access them. Um, and and our job as narrators or as actors is to make that manifest, is to make it real. Uh, I honestly think that's sort of my most... When doing fiction, that's my most important job, is to, to find where where the play is and and do it. Do and you have a preference between projects that are fiction or nonfiction? I just like my favorites are projects that are really well written. I, I recently did this book called Our Country Friends by a writer named Gary Steingart, which was so beautifully written. You know, I'm a musician too, so getting to like wrap my mouth around a really beautiful phrase sure. is just... It's the best. It really is the best. Um, anything, you know, where you get to play, where you get to have fun or be moved or be really engaged is that's that's the ball game right there. And well, that's really got to be great see... for the writer oh, to, yeah. to come a lot for you to bring their book to life, I imagine. Uh, one would hope. I've gotten a lot of writers have written to me and are very, very happy. Uh, so I, I take that as a good sign. I don't know about some other writers who knows, <laughs> you know, if they don't write. 
but it's um, maybe, maybe this happened more in your earlier days before you were well known and, and doing repeating work for production houses or the same author over and over. But have have there ever been a time where an author is like too difficult to work with, where maybe you thought the project was good, you get into it, and then you send him a chapter or, or some of the work, and then he's nitpicking every little thing and and uh, that sort of thing, and it just becomes more trouble than it's worth. Um. There's only been one like that. Normally, the author is not involved. What's the, his name? The author... Can you say his name, please? No, I won't. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> that, that I will not do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did do this one where the author was involved in the production. Oh. And, uh, and that became, at one point, the author was insisting on a particular kind of read on something that really was the wrong thing. That's tough. And it was, I'm a big believer in what the director says goes, unless you have a very strong argument against it. State your case, Mm -hmm. but the director is usually your first audience. And so if they're not hearing what they need to hear, take them at their word. You can always do another take. You know, but don't be so married to your own view that 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 becomes you know you're 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 you know you're not flexible. But this one was so off, uh, and it really was it was teeth grindingly wrong. And that's tough because you can't just say no. That's a terrible idea. I'm going to do it my way. You've got to be very sensitive <laughs> about um, rejecting the terrible idea. Yeah, and I have a I have a unfortunately. Um, I have a, a occasionally a slightly sharp sounding attitude that I don't necessarily <laughs> mean to have it come off as sharp sounding as it is, but I have been credibly accused of being what could be charitably termed as a dick. <laughs> so. uh, f- set in his ways, firm in your opinions. Yeah. So, oh you man. Know. <laughs> Yeah, what I'm about, getting, uh, what about uh, like pronunciations? Because I know, you know, some some things can be pronounced in a few acceptable ways. Other things maybe like in a in a unfamiliar language and just be just flat out hard to pronounce. But have you ever had to go back and forth on uh, preferred pronunciations of oh, places absolutely. or names or that sort of thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Um, and you always get raked over the coals for it, no matter how. I did a book that was had a lot of Arabic and a lot of Hebrew in it. Oh. And I got, we got pronunciations from the author who is native to that neighborhood. And, you know, we followed them as closely. I'm a pretty good mimic. And we followed them as closely as humanly possible. Certain people are going to turn around and be like, this person is clearly not a native Hebrew or Arabic speaker. <laughs> what was and your like, first Well, clue? yeah, no shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh, my God. Um, and you, you just sort of – the great thing about that is, though, and I know this sounds – this sounds – I don't know what it sounds like. Um, but it's been really instructive in one incredibly wonderful way. It taught me that nobody knows what the hell they're talking about, which is a great thing when you put out work because we all read reviews and everybody gets sort of bent out of shape by bad reviews, but bad reviews are your best friends. 
good reviews are the ones that lead you down the primrose path into thinking whatever you're doing is wonderful and you should they sort of mold you in this way that you shouldn't be molded it's the bad reviews because the bad reviews are the ones that you go like what they don't know what they're talking about i got all the pronunciations from the author yada 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 Mm -hmm. the good reviews just say nice things about you he was just great i really enjoyed it and you're like yeah i am just great aren't i i really (laughs) did that great um but nobody knows what they're talking about. Nobody. The good reviews and the bad reviews. They're all just coming from their own weird perspective, and it has no bearing on what you do. So just do your work. Don't worry about it. That's Put out cool... your record, and if people don't like it, fine. And if they like it, fine. Do whatever moves you next time. Don't yeah. worry about critics or anybody else. That's so That's so much the beauty of any art form is it's so subjective. So it's like, hey, this is what I was feeling and thinking and doing at the time of creating it. It reaches you at a certain place and time and mindset, and you either do or don't like it. You may not even like it now or may like it later. Someone else may love it now, hate it later. It's all so subjective to person, place, and time that um, that's what makes it such a fluid, wonderful thing is it's never just uh, clear, set in stone. It is what it is. It's ever-changing and different to everybody. Yeah, it's just communicating. That's all it is. It's putting down a marker to say, I was here and I felt this at this time. In whatever way that manifests, even if it's, you know, I mean, that, that I always return to that really wonderful William Carlos Williams poem about the plums, which is this really simple poem, uh, you know, where it's like I... I came home and I, you had the bag of plums and I ate them all because they were so cool and delicious. And it's really just a husband writing to his wife, I ate the fruit that you were saving. I'm really sorry, but they were really good. <laughs> and it's beautifully simply drawn. And it's even though it was written, what, 70 years ago, it still has this feeling of like, I know that guy. Yeah. I've been that person. It's, it's just a so really real and relatable. That's funny. Yeah. And that's kind of what all we're trying to do is to sort of create without action, is create these sort of neural links to each other of like, I, I have felt like you or I have felt like this. And somebody else goes like, huh, I, I felt like that too. I mean, for me, music has always done that. That's always been yeah. the world of, of music. It's just I'll listen to something and it'll be devastating. I'll go like, that's exactly how I feel. It's magic. You, so you, I mean, it, what it sounds like, I mean, this is a creative process. I actually didn't realize how creative uh, audiobooks were. I mean, I kind of had a, a sense for it, but what you're unveiling here is is really just the pure creative process. And and then when people listen, you know, they bring their guards down. And, um, you know, I, had, I imagine they just, you probably have some fans. Do you have fans that are just like... Uh, uh, reach out to you and want to um, contact you, and uh, well, obviously we have Mike. Oh yeah, but, that's me. Um, I'm the fan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but do do you have like a fan base that that is also kind of like uh, rooting for your next book? And uh, I that do, yeah, I do. It's it's uh, it's very cool. It's sort of the last thing that I expected, but I do. I hear. I usually hear. You know, I'll get like. Once or twice a week, I'll get a fan letter or somebody will, you know, write to me and ask me a question. And, and it's great. It's really it's a really nice, low key, non-invasive level of sort of fame and notoriety. 
Um, it's one of the things, actually, I also really like about audiobooks is that it's uh, it's not a high dollar, ergo, a highly competitive, cutthroat business. Um, it's an art form, and it's you know I'm I'm a working actor. I work all the time. Uh, I make a decent middle class living. Um, and because it, like I said, because it's not high dollar, it's just kind of low key. We all know each other for the most part. Most of us are friends. We kind of root for each other. Nobody, I, I don't think I've met a single person in this field who is like jealous and grabbing this and grabbing that and angry about this and angry about that. It's mostly people who are actors and who are literate and who really love what we do um it's great that's yeah and comparing cool. it to acting too it's kind of like um you know the one thing that's missing is the audience but the the audience reaction is a little bit delayed i suppose so you're, you're kind of not and sometimes like an improv an audience can be an advantage in a way where it kind of puts you you're on stage and you're really like you have to perform and you're you attenuate your your performance to the audience as well. Um, so was that a challenge to to uh, not have like a physical audience, or or was that just? Um, I mean, obviously you're working from your imagination, so you're like making your imagination come true. So maybe maybe not, but curious it's, what your perspective is on that. You're always, I think, I'm always aware that the microphone is the audience's ear. That's what I'm speaking into. There is somebody on the other end of the line. Um, it's really not that dissimilar from making a record. Because when you're making a record, it's generally you know, just you and a microphone when you're singing. When you're playing, it may be you and the band, or maybe it's just you. Maybe it's just you doing overdubs. But you're not in front of an audience. It doesn't have that immediacy. It doesn't have that sort of kind of kinetic thrill and uh and nervousness of like oh my god you know we've like that 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 incredible energy when you're in front of an audience and you're getting that reaction um but you kind of can't it's not in in that way it's not dissimilar from theater in that you're not you're working from a script you can't go off and like I mean, you can do it in theater. You you have to sometimes improv in theater because somebody will you know will go up, they'll miss a line, or something will happen, and you have to react to that. Um, in this, you can't deviate from the script at all. Yeah, you are you have to be on script the entire time. What you can do is, depending on your character, and depending on sort of where you are emotionally as that character, you can react differently every time to a certain line. It just depends on how you sort of set it up and what kind of tension and release there is. I don't know. I don't know if that answered your question. I don't know if I'm right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, I'm just relating it to my limited experience in, in theater, but, and, um, but no, that, that definitely did. Um, you know, you, your audience is, uh, you know, your audience is listening to you basically. So yeah, the stakes are high. And what yeah, you're speaking. And one neat thing about uh, pre-recorded performance whether it's voiceover or audiobook or anything like that is um a you can do it in your underwear so that's a big benefit 
And B, if you make a mistake... Again, I'm not on camera. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so there's that. And then if you make a mistake, uh, you just go and do it over, record it over, edit it in, and, and, it's, and yeah. it's there. So it's so different from live performances. And I can relate to that. I've, I've played drums in a band for a long, long time, and I love live performing. I love feeding off the audience. I love that energy that comes from being in a dive bar and playing rock music and, and just that live, in-the-moment feel and energy. Um, but I also love the, the audiobook performing side of it or the voiceover side of it to where you're still performing and you're really going at something creative, but you can do as many takes as it takes. And that's a sure. cool, uh, that's a cool benefit. Yeah. And again, it, that part of it is not dissimilar from making a record mm-hmm. because you do get sort of both of that. Like, Ooh, I am making a very loud noise with my guitar. And I am enjoying it. Now, I didn't play it so great here. I'm gonna you know, I'm gonna take another pass at this. Yeah. But there's still that palpable sense of like, oh, I'm making a bitchin' record. This is awesome. Yeah. You know? Yeah, listening back in the studio. Do you produce your, your own band? Do you record and produce your own stuff? Yeah, I have my own studio. So cool. And and record and produce, yeah. So much fun. And it so, is really I love it. What kind of timeline were we talking about here when you had the the garden moment with the uh the yellow notepad? How long ago was that? How long have you since you decided to get into audiobooks? That was September 2008. Okay. Um I did my first audiobook in October. Um and then I did my second. It took a while to sort of get into kind of circulation. I imagine. Within a Within about a year and a half, I was I was beginning to be more known, and then um, I really started re- like regularly working, probably around, probably switched over around 2011, 2012, where it was like, okay, this is a regular gig now. What did getting and completing that first book or those first couple of books from nothing, being totally unknown, um, not having connections with any production houses, obviously... What did that process look like, finding those projects and completing them? <laughs> uh, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Still getting over this illness. Um, Man. The, uh, I, I'm laughing because, I, as you may have noticed, my way of going about life is just sort of marching in and declaring that I'm doing this now. And <laughs> that's so that's basically, that's basically what I did. I just decided I was doing this and was like, oh, okay. So I'll take no for an answer temporarily. But I I don't accept no for an answer for something that I want to do. Period. It's just, it's not, that's not on. And if I need to do it myself, I'll do it myself. But I'm going to do it. It's it's going to be done. So I, I, it, it, a friend of mine who is a studio owner, um, he and I were just having a conversation about other issues. We, our friends were, our kids were friends. They went to nursery school together. So we were just talking, and I said, "Oh, you know, I was thinking of going into this." And he said, "Oh, it's so funny that you mentioned that. I, I, I just recorded one here at the studio, huh. and he'd never recorded one there before at his studio." And I said, "Oh, would you mind giving me the guy's phone number? I'd like to see if I can audition." So I get this guy's number. I call him. He says, I'm not taking auditions. I said, what do you mean? I only take British actors. Why is that? Because they're the only people who know how to speak the English language, and they're all studied. And I said, I'm studied. No, I don't take American actors. I'm like, I'm st- I went to theater school. 
I know big words. <laughs> I read all the time, <laughs> you know. And he's finally, I wore him down. And he said, all right, you can audition for me. I said, great. Go in and record two things. Record a, you know, two minutes of a fiction and two minutes of a nonfiction. Okay. So I just had a little rehearsal studio at the time. I went in um, during the daytime because everybody else is banging drums at night. And so there's no way you could do it. So I go in during the day. I cut this thing. I email it to him. And he writes me back and he says, you know, that was almost good. Huh. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I was like, thanks. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. So then he says, uh, do it again, but do these other things. Okay, so I cut it again, all sort of confident. Yeah, that was almost good. I send it to him, and he goes, that was terrible. You learned nothing. Do it again. <laughs> so I sent the third one, and he writes back, and he says, that was perfect. That was perfect. And I'm thinking, well, great. And I'm just like, okay, let's let the, you know, let the sunshine in. It's the age of Aquarius. Tumbleweed, <laughs> single cough, cricket oil painting. I'm like, God damn it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, finally, about five weeks later, he writes to me out of the blue and says, I got a title for it. Do you want to do it? Sure. So I go and do it. Um, and I was like, I'll just take whatever, whatever he offers me. Yeah. Um, I do it. And at the end of it, I said, you know, I'd, I'd really like to make this sort of what I do. What do you recommend? And he said, "Well, I'm retiring. <laughs> this is my last book. Oh, I'm been retiring. Up the wrong tree all yeah. this time. This is my last book." He said, "But there's a guy you need to call. This is his name. Give him a call." I said, "Do you have his number?" "No, look him up." Uh. So I look it up. I I cold call the office, and it's it's Random House, which I didn't know. I didn't know that this was like the biggest, you know, like the sort of most prestigious one. I cold call and I said, you know, I'm looking to to audition. And the woman says, well, you know, we only do auditions twice a year and you have to apply to audition and send us all this stuff and yada, yada, yada. And, uh, and I said, oh, okay. And she said, you know, and she said it in passing. She said, you know, it's really funny that you called today because we're having auditions today. Uh. And I said, is there any way I can get in on it? And she said, no, 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 no. This has been booked six months in advance and it's completely booked. And I, I just was like, same thing. I'm not taking no for an answer. And so I said, I have a really deep voice <laughs> <laughs> and I know a lot of big words. And she laughed and she said, all right, let me see what I can do. And she comes back on and she says, if you can be out here in 40 minutes, we can squeeze you in. They're in Woodland Hills. Oh, and I'm in at that time I was in Eagle Rock, which are 25 miles apart. 25 LA so, miles. Till 25 yeah. LA miles. Yeah. So I'm like, I'll be there. I'll see you in 40 minutes. And she said, okay. You know, she told me what I needed to bring. I got in the car. I hightailed it up there. Made it just in time. Auditioned, and they gave me my first like real serious book that. January and that was in October. Wow. So it took about three months, but all of a sudden I was like sort of there. And that kind of opened me up. And then I started, you know, people would say, Oh, you should contact this person. You should do this. And I would just start like, okay, well, I'll call that person. But I'm not really a good networker. I just like I said, I just I just want to work. Yeah. So I will I'll I'll 
if I want to do something, I'd be like, I want to do this. <laughs> no, I think there's really cool. There's this. some people that do a lot of schmoozy, a lot of networky, a lot of lunchy, and all that kind of stuff. And then there's some people that are just like, hey, I want to do this. How do I do it? And uh, I, I think people respond to that well. Um, you know, they see someone who's eager, um, give them a shot, and then they come through. I think that speaks louder than than uh, being the guy who knows everybody. You know, a lot of times. Yeah, I'm I'm really not good at schmoozing. I mean, I mean, I'm a musician. I like being at home. Yeah, I like my stuff, and I like my kids, and I don't want to go to parties, and I don't want to. I just like. I just want to sit in front of my micro. Generally, I want to sit in front of my microphone and goof around. That's the highest form of life to me is getting to sit in front of a microphone and just goof around. That, that's and if I get to read a script while doing it, great. It's a lofty you know? aspiration. You know, some people are like, "Oh, I want to be the CEO of a Fortune 500." It's like I just really want to kind of hang out in my den uh, in slippers. Yeah. That's and that's what sounds nice jokes. to me too. I hear you. Yeah. Just crack jokes, yeah. sit in front of a microphone, make the kids laugh, poke them, <laughs> irritate them for a while. <laughs> uh, and then when they get too old for it, do the same to their grandkids. Absolutely. Love that it. is my that is my raison d'etre. Do you do all of your audiobook recording at home? Like at Random House, you went into a studio. I imagine that was kind of stressful, walking into a place like that, um, going into a studio with people staring at you through, I picture it like uh, like an interrogation room through, you know, um, double-sided glass, you know, and everyone's over there with clipboards. Uh, that really didn't bother me. No? Okay. Yeah, I mean, at that, again, by that point, I had played the character of sure. CEO of a small firm, of this, of that, you know, so it wasn't like the ability to be sort of intimidated by a locale, um, uh, all right, I got to tell you this other funny story because it's a good one. So I'm on tour in Texas with my band, and it just so happens that one of my biggest clients is headquartered in Texas, in Houston. Um, and we were in the middle of a global software campaign for them. We had developed this piece of software, and it was going out to every business unit of this particular corporation globally. Okay. 17 business units Every almost every country on the planet, over a hundred thousand employees globally. So, it's a big campaign, and because we were going to be in Texas and I was going to be in Houston, it's like, well, I've got to meet you guys, and we will have, you know, we'll have our meeting. Well, we we had played the gig the night before. We got a flat tire in the van. When we came out of the venue at 2 o'clock in the morning, we had to figure out how to switch that. We didn't get back to the hotel until 4. Then there's the usual sort of hilarity and after a gig, you know, nonsense that you go through. Sure. But I had – my meeting was at 10. So I'm like at, at about 5.36, I'm like, I've got to go to bed right now and get at least an hour and a half of sleep. So I go to bed. I get up an hour and a half later, I shower, I shave, I get into my my business garb. I go downstairs to have some breakfast and review my notes for the meeting and there are two the, the two roadies are in the restaurant. They haven't gone to bed yet. Oh. And they look at me and they're like, "What the hell are you doing?" <laughs> it's like, "I have another life that I have to deal with right now." I'm Clark Kent. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I have a full breakfast. It's summertime in Houston, which I don't know if you've been uh, summertime okay. in Texas, and it was just murder. Oh, yeah. 
I only have like three blocks to walk to get to the headquarters of this company, and I am soaked through by the time I get there. I have to wait downstairs in the air conditioning to sort of cool off and dry off. I go up. My contact there is like, well, we're going to have the first meeting now, but then the second meeting we were going to present to everybody is going to be moved to afternoon, so we're going to do this short first one and a tour of everything. And then why don't we go and have lunch in the employee you know, in the in the the executive dining room, I'm like uh, okay. Meanwhile, I just had a full breakfast to sort of fortify me and yeah. get me through this. What was supposed to be just like two one hour meetings back to back. I'm like, now it's going to be a whole day, and I have to eat an early lunch. And the whole thing was, you got to try this. Oh, you got to <laughs> eat some of this. And I'm like, I don't even know where I'm putting this. You know. Southern was, hospitality is like, no, 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 take more, yeah. take more. So, yeah. So, I mean, for me, like going into a room, this is how this, winding it back to your original question, then the stories of my ridiculous life uh, being, you know, yes, it's weird being in a new environment and it's always a bit like, oh, I hope I do okay. But it's not like, it's not like I couldn't at least go, I got this. Yeah. This is fine. I'm not hungover trying to pretend like I'm hungry. Yeah. <laughs> you could be worse. <laughs> and being and having to be really, really smart. Uh, on an hour and a half of sleep. Yeah. 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 Oh, man. So with Random House, they bring you into a studio. Um, mm-hmm. Do they do their audiobooks in studio, or is all, all of your other work in your own home studio? How, how does that work? Well, the pandemic changed the calculus. Ah. Um, I've had my own studio... Uh, I've had my own sort of recording facility for voiceover for, what, 10 years? Okay. Um, but when the pandemic started, then you couldn't, go, you couldn't go into a studio. Sure. So I took that opportunity to completely tear out the entire place and purpose build it as a proper professional facility. It had sort of been like I had a whisper room. I don't know if you know what a whisper room is, but it's kind of a portable uh-huh. booth. That yeah, you, you can kind of, kind of buy that just whole little voice um, closet. Yeah, and it's fine if you're not uh, claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. I happen to be horribly claustrophobic. So I finally just went, okay, I'm going to basically tear this whole area out, get rid of the whisper room, make an actual purpose-built vocal booth, but what I made was a vocal booth slash amp room slash drum room. Yeah. It's convertible. And then I have sort of the main room where I do the mixing and where my desk is and all my outboard gear is and all my guitars and everything else. So Awesome. Yeah. And this is so, all in your home? All in my home. And so for the past two years, every every book has been over Zoom, like directed over Zoom or self-directed. Half the books I do are self-directed. Yeah, I was kind of wondering that. I've, I've, I've done both where you've got someone, are they Zoom directed is kind of they're listening in live as you're reading and they're going through it line by line or, or just listening yep. in while you do it? Yep. All right. Do you do any of your own editing or do you give them raw files and someone else kind Hells of goes through and edits? no. Oh, I'm so envious. <laughs> editing sucks. Yeah. I hate editing. Ugh. I hate it. It used to be that you would do, you know, um, they a lot of the the publishing houses want you to do what's called punch and roll. Mm-hmm. So if you make a mistake, you go you you wind yourself back to 
the closest insertion point, which is usually a big comma or pause, mm-hmm. and let it roll, and then punch in right there, and then go. Um, I'm a pretty efficient reader. I don't make a lot of mistakes. Um, so I finally just said, I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. I will deliver raw files just the same as if I was being directed. I'll mark up the script because um, it just messes with the flow. Yeah, yeah, it really and does. It, and it, it literally doubles your time in the booth to be sitting there and having to go punch and roll. It's, yeah. it's, it's kind of silly. And for me, it really doesn't make a huge difference because I'm a pretty efficient reader i don't make a ton of mistakes so yeah yeah well, okay so that makes me think of something I've, I've wanted to ask someone who does a really great job of it and i'll try to describe it so um you're doing a long session and i don't know how long is a normal session how long do you sit and actually record for it depends on the book okay it depends on the content that's one of the really fascinating things just from a physiological perspective how much energy is expended in doing this there are certain books that are really conversational and i can go for an hour and a half without pausing certain books have especially if you have a lot of foreign language sure or a lot of terminology that's difficult to wrap your uh, to wrap your mouth around mm-hmm. those will sap your energy much faster sure because you your the the level of of mental processing the amount of mental processing that you're using actually has a physical exhaustion element and it'll be it'll it'll exhaust itself much faster so it really depends some books i have to take a break every 20 minutes some i can just go okay and not worry about it so you kind of go for 20 minutes or an hour take a break come back do more of it maybe over yep. a total 5 6 hour session in a day or something like that yeah normally you kind of wind down after around six hours yeah that's a long time it's, to be talking really, you start getting really yeah. kind of clicky mouth and all that stuff <laughs> yeah the words just start to swim in front of you yeah. and you just kind of yeah. start to disconnect from the material so then and you can't do that so what i'm driving at is after that after a long day your tone and pace for most people begin to slowly fade into a fatigued state and mm-hmm. then you take a break you sleep it off you pick up the next day and you hit the mic um with a different vigor or tone or sound or pace. And for a lot of audiobooks, um, narrators are very obvious when they're coming back into a new session. There, There's just a huge uh, change in tone and pace. And you, you know what I mean? I don't know how to describe it yeah. other than that. But it's, no, it's just it's... super obvious where they're stopping and starting. Sure. Um, great narrators uh, are almost seamless, um, totally imperceptible. And you're great at that. What's that look like for you? The awareness of that? Is there a process for stopping and starting? What do you do? Well, you're, you're a musician. I know my instrument. It's that simple. I know my instrument. So I know if, and my instrument isn't just my voice, it's also my intent and my, my focus. If my focus starts to flag, that's when it's either time to take a break or my day is done, depending on where I am in the day. Um, with my actual, you know, with my the, the physical voice, matching tone is really important because mm-hmm. you can't you can't pull the listener from the book. You can't have them see the joins. So, like when it's winter time with kids, I intentionally pitch my voice down about a minor third 
just in case I get a cold. Because if I get a cold and I didn't pitch it down, I have to pause for as long as I have that cold. But if I did pitch my voice down, it'll be able to be consistent because my voice naturally pitches down about a minor third when I get a cold. Wow. So you don't hear it. That's a very technical approach. I'm impressed. Yeah, you kind of have to do that. I mean, there are it's like any other job. There are you know, there's a there's a learning curve and there are levels of expertise that you just assume the more experience you have. Wow. When when you're live in a session, um whether you've read the whole book like for the a fiction title or just uh, a certain portion ahead, but you're actually like in in the book reading, how far ahead are you reading? Are you taking like taking a second for every sentence to kind of read it ahead, mumble it out, kind of get it in your head and then do that sentence? Are you really just reading real time? You're 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 in flow. All right. That's I am. I, I tend to be in flow. The only times that I'll have to sort of back up is German can be really hard because they have the longest words with the most consonants and very specific pronunciation rules. Yeah. That are not English. So it's I have to kind of go like, okay, wait a second, let me practice this word. But the rest of the time, it's just in flow. Wow, that's cool. It's really and it's really important, I think, for it to be in flow because that's how the that's how a reader. I mean, anytime you've read a book and had sort of the magic of a book occur to you, it just you lose the sense that you're reading. You're just in this whatever this world is. Yeah. And you kind of can't be in this world. It's like, okay, we're in this part of the world. No, wait right there. Let me paint the next part of this world for you. Okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay, now we're going to go into here. Now, before you go into here, I just need to explain, it smells a little funky. You know, you can't have, it just has to be you navigating through this. Yeah, you can't just be chopping together sentences. It's just got a natural flow to it. Yeah. You know what I like? So would it be go ahead, safe Dick. would it be safe to say that your your favorite book is one that um you flow with the best and do you have a favorite book or would, are you comfortable with with saying that or um that you've never I don't know if I have a favorite book it's like saying it do you have a favorite song there's a lot that I love I recently I really loved uh Gary Steingart's book. That was just magnificent because it was, like I said, it was so beautifully written. Um, he has these absolutely stunning turns of phrase. And it's funny and it's dark and it's, um, it was just wonderful. Uh, and the, the characters were, were interesting and had a lot of sort of broad comic appeal and also these really small little moments that are just like, it's like a playground. They're wonderful to play in. Um, I did another book recently. It's just a compendium of short stories called uh, Shit Cassandra Saw, which was great. I did, I think, two or three of those stories, and they were spectacular, these these short stories, and they were really fun. Um, basically, anything where I, if I get to learn from it or I get to just go in and play is, like, that's that's all I want. That's that's heaven for me. That's really cool. That's really cool. I want to ask you, too, about... Will you talk a little bit about your recording gear, your setup, the mic you use, just some of the gear that you're doing? Um, currently, I am using uh, Neumann TLM-103. Um, 
it's a little bit brighter on the top end, and it uh, it still has a good round low end. It allows like all the sort of the rumble uh, to come through, um, but it it has a little bit of an emphasis on kind of the high mids, which works really well for my voice. Um, and I'm running it into a a Neve clone, but it's a it's a 1073 clone. I notch out a little, a tiny bit at 80 hertz just to remove a little bit of the of the real deep low rumble, um, and then gain stage it so that it's it's really the, the you know pre gain is low, post gain is high, so that it's very clean. Okay, and that works really well for me for this. I have lots of other mics for. Other I things. can imagine. I know. Uh, uh... Yeah, just through trying to mic things. Just trying to mic a drum set uh, requires an uh, extensive collection. And then all the other oh, stuff, sure. all the different mics for guitar cabinets or acoustic or uh, there's no end in a fun way. Have you done Have you done a good Glenn Johns setup on your drums yet? Uh, I, I don't have a ton of mics. So I've got like a sure drum mic set where each, each drum has its own little like rim mounted mic. Um, right. And then some Sennheiser overheads, like a like a paired left and right pair of Sennheiser overheads. Mm-hmm. Um and oh and then I put a like pencil mic on my hi hat because I really like a lot of hi hat control. Sure. And that that's that's pretty much what I've played with and that has been more capable than myself. I'm I'm able to spend so much time just tweaking that limited setup. Um and it's just so fun to play with different different mixes and different compression on the drums themselves uh on the drum mics themselves and it's it's just so fun i could spend oh it's endless endless hours doing it yeah Yeah. endless 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 and like the further you go down in the rabbit hole the further you go down in the rabbit hole it's like it just you know i feel bad for my neighbors because you know just hearing me play drums is loud but I'm, i'm okay at drums so if i was playing a beat i'm sure it wouldn't be terrible but when all they hear is do 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 for you know six hours straight that's got to get annoying oh god yes <laughs> right, do you do you, do you have any uh, do you have any favorite drummers oh god a million um gosh man i like punk rock so I've, I've grown up around um punk rock music and i love those drummers uh gosh in the punk rock world i really like brooks wackerman um he was the drummer for mm-hmm. suicidal sure. tendencies and infectious yep. grooves and bad religion and now he's the current yep. drummer for avenge sevenfold Mm-hmm. I like that guy. He's really um, well-rounded. He's a great, great drummer. Yeah. Um, oh, gosh, man. So many. So many. Um, who else? I really like, um, oh, man, just driving punk rock drummers. Like the guy from Pennywise is really great. Um, Bad Religion's gone through a lot of drummers. You actually did the Bad Religion book. I did. Uh, I loved I that book. That was a great story. And I didn't realize, um, well, when I listened to you do that book, uh, you were just a great voiceover doing the book. And then later on, I heard you kind of another book. It was um, a Jared Diamond book, The the Third Chimpanzee. Oh, yeah. that's a That was fascinating. Oh, my gosh. That was a cool book. That was on recommendation yeah. in another audio book I read, I think The Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene recommended that book had never heard of it so i went and found the third chimpanzee and then you were the narrator on that and that's where i really noticed you as like man this guy's really good 
And then I do what I do anytime I find an audiobook narrator I like. I go into their list of books they've done to see, hey, if this, has this guy done anything else that I'd really like? Because um, he's really good. And I've got a kind of a short list of, of narrators that I really like and kind of follow. And um, another one you did was Chaos. That damn man, oh, that was yeah. that was gnarly. That was uh that it, was a bit much, but a very interesting book. But over my head, that that was some uh, intense material there. Glick stuff is really really wonderful. Wow, um, I've I've absolutely loved it. I had never even uh, heard of Chaos Theory before that, so it was my kind of introductory introduction to it. And yikes! I would highly recommend his book, um, The Information: A History, A Theory, A Flood. Okay, it's the history of information theory, how we arrived at delineating and deciding what is information. And some of the stories in there are incredible. It's brilliant. It's really, really brilliant. And that, again, to answer your other question, that's also just, I, I absolutely love that stuff. It's so fascinating. I'll listen to books that are like chaos. Like, obviously, even reading the, the summary of it, I'm like, yeah, this is beyond me. Let's let's dig in and see, and see what it is. Um, and uh, it's just fun to be exposed to new ideas and new theories like that. I enjoy that quite a bit. Um, and, but I mean, you've got a really broad spectrum of books. I mean, every genre you can think of, you've got kids' books in there, you've got fiction of all sorts, you've got nonfiction, history, science books, all that kind of stuff, man. You've got, you got a broad spectrum of, of genres in there. I, I, I have a, honestly, I have a broad spectrum of interests. And if I can have fun with it, I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's super cool. Hey, I wanted to ask you real quick what you thought about the voiceover or the audiobook industry as a whole. Like, I know it's exploding, um, yeah. but I didn't have anything more uh, smart to say about it than that. So I, I looked up a quick Google search on growth of the audiobook industry, and I was blown away at the numbers I was seeing. I was seeing that um, the pandemic has been a huge boost in audiobook consumption and production. And <coughs> it's gone, like, globally, they're calling it. Uh, a few years ago in 2019, um, a $2.2.5 billion industry. In 2020, a year later, was $3.5 billion, and they project it's going to be a $15 billion industry uh, in five years in 27. Um, so crazy yeah. growth expected. Um, it's, it is, um, which I think is great and I think is slightly worrying, it, only in the sense that that it's only worrying in that, you know, things change. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing, nothing remains static. Uh, and one of the things I really loved about this, this world is that it has not been a huge dollar industry. Usually when a lot of money comes in is when things really just become mm -hmm. insufferable. Um, so my hope is that that doesn't happen. It is becoming a lot more uh, competitive and because there is a lot of money, there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of downward pressure on uh, narrators because more people want to be involved. There's also a lot of pressure on using AI as, as a narrator. I wanted to ask you about that, yeah. Which is a really bizarre idea to me. I hate it. I don't know whether to hate it or whether just to think it's like 
counterintuitive. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I understand. I understand the idea of like, well, I can make a lot of money. Sure, I'm gonna make a lot of money right now. <laughs> but that's not that's not what we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the one of the great things that we do that I don't think gets enough understanding is we are the contemporary storytellers in the contemporary idiom, meaning that uh, imagine. Imagine hearing some of the great actors of the time reading Poe contemporaneously and being able to hear that. Reading Shakespeare contemporaneously and being able to hear that. Because it's not just about... You learn so much from the inflection, from the rhythm, from the, the musicality, from from what words are emphasized and in what way. All these little teeny syntactical nuances of of performance. You learn so much about the character and about the time. Uh, I'll put it this way. My grandparents were, you know, like my grandfather came to this country when he was about six in 1904. Lived in in New York City and then moved to New Jersey uh, as a kid. Um, from him, I realized that, you know, and my, my grandparents had this soft, lyrical accent that no longer exists, mm-hmm. this sort of soft New Jersey accent. Um, what we hear and what we think of as the New York accent isn't, the New York accent that we think of is actually a theatrical extrapolation of what a New York accent was because you had to get to the back of the room. Mm-hmm. But you listen to like Groucho Marx on stage and he's this booming, nasally, brassy sound, right? But if you watch him on You Bet Your Life or on radio, he's this very soft, gentle, lyrical sound because it was a conversational era. And we didn't, you weren't competing with all this giant noise. It was a quieter time. And, and language and conversation were, were prized and were almost an art form in and of themselves. So what we're doing as narrators is we're preserving almost in amber the, the idiomatic language and rhythms and nuances of our time and an AI is not going to be able to do that. No, that's very well said. You know, it's like, uh, sometimes I recently I've been again, um, you know, listening to some classical music and there are no classical songs that have been recorded, obviously, um, from, from back in those eras. So really we're just taking the music that's been written down on, on paper and reproducing it. But, Who's to say that the nuance hasn't been lost in that? That's that's uh, so true, you know, when you think about how far uh, the nuance and um, the time period plays to what you're reading. That's interesting. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at a really good example of that is um, Rhapsody in Blue, Gershwin. So Gershwin's hired, commissioned by Paul Whiteman and his orchestra— to write the first, what they're calling the first jazz symphony. Um, 
all the musicians of the era were guys who came up through both classical music and klezmer. That was a lot of what kind of what jazz was. Um, not the New Orleans jazz, but, you know, sort of the more symphonic elements. So if you listen to an original 78 of Rhapsody in Blue, Paul Whiteman and his orchestra with the composer at the piano, two things really jump out. One, Gershwin was a monster of a player. I mean, so athletic and very kind of Russian, like his sound is very, like, it's very athletic, very precise, very, very Russian. Um, and all of the horn players emphasize both the, the entrance and the exit of the note, which comes from Klezmer. So, like, the note would be like, ah, like that. Um, you contrast that with the version of Rhapsody in Blue that I grew up with, which was Bernstein, and it is lyrical... And it's very, it's like an ancillary national anthem. It's beautiful, but it doesn't smell like garlic. You know what I mean? It doesn't smell like frying onions and garlic and a tenement. You can't smell like Model A exhaust and horse manure in it. Yeah, it's garlic powder. It's not the real thing. It doesn't have that pop. Which this, I mean, the, the original Rhapsody in Blue is deeply ethnic. It just smells of white fish and garlic, and it's great, <laughs> you know. And we we do we lose some of that. Yeah, I know Beethoven's a, uh, an easy example because so many people have played Beethoven's music, and there's just huge variations of the same Beethoven piece, and the feeling and the stops and starts, like you're saying, are just so different um, from player to player that it it just it, it, you can't help but imagine how it would have actually sounded played through Beethoven and uh, makes me sad that that's not possible, but um, it becomes so, so obvious, like you're saying that the nuance is so um, fluid forever that people will be remaking Beethoven songs for all eternity and they'll all sound different forever. Um, So that's very much like, and that's kind of, and that's the beauty of it is that it's reinterpreted and it's, I mean, again, this is one of the things that I really love about what we do. We are preserving an amber. It's, you know, <coughs> books in their original milieu, mm-hmm. their original idiom. Eventually, if it's a really great book, it'll be reread. And you'll be able to compare and contrast the way these two things are made because people live different lives. And I think that's wonderful. And an AI will 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 not be able to to address that at no. all. If anything, it'll go through and automatically render every book ever written into a uh, audiobook form. And maybe that'll be useful for old things like um, you know old old books that no one really has interest in. Maybe listening to or reading the entire thing, but being able to go back and hear an excerpt or a piece or whatever. Maybe that'll be useful. But yeah, I just don't see myself becoming engrossed in an audiobook like I do now um, with an AI voiceover. I'm sure they can sound very human, but not oh, to yeah. the sense, not to the element of feeling and understanding and connecting with the material. That's never going to be possible. Sounding like a human is very different than being human. Yeah. 
and having a real is it, what you said is perfect. Like connecting to yeah, it. yeah. That's the trick. Yeah, interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, I was reading a little bit about that when I was reading the in- industry, um, and of course the 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 statistical like um, revenue growth article or that the focus was revenue growth. What they're talking about AI is this. Oh, it's going to be the next step in revenue growth. It's going to be a huge continuing boom uh, of exponential growth for the industry. And I'm reading that going, no, no. Well, I don't think you're going to you're going to lose people actually doing it. What I worry about is that, uh, again, is this downward pressure. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's been downward pressure on on what we're paid and we're asked to do more and more and more. And yeah, basically for me, I finally went, well, I'm not doing that. Yeah. I'm, there's a reason that you're going to hire me, and if I, if especially if I've built a facility, you're not going to you're not going to pass on your studio savings by pocketing it and charging me more, right? You know, right. or essentially saying we're going to pay you a little mm-hmm. less. Uh, uh-uh. uh, no, no. Even in my- I built the studio, so you, there's going to be like I'm raising my rates, right? Right. Which I think is fair. Um. Yeah, no, I, I, I've even seen a little bit of that in my little amateur voiceover world of those small stuff I've done is, you know, you end up providing a quote for some commercial or corporate narration piece or whatever, just real kind of cookie cutter basic stuff. So you provide a quote and then they come back and go, um, oh, well, we can get it on one of these like guru type websites for $20. Like, oh, well, uh, good luck with that because yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing that. Yeah, yeah. I I do think you have to be willing to turn around and say like, nope. yeah. Yeah, you got to find that. No, I'm not doing yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You got to get comfortable with that line in the sand. Um, don't yeah. feel like you need to come back on the other side of it. Um, and if that's all they want to pay, fine. You know, there's a market for that. You guys will get what you need. Mm-hmm. It may not be as good as you're hoping, but uh, if you change your mind, let me know. I would rather have less money and be happier. Amen. Why do we want money you know, in the first place? I mean, I, I, I honestly look at my life and what more do I want? I don't need all the money in the world. I don't. I have everything I possibly want. I have, like, I have my children. I have my instruments. I have my friends. I have a, a roof over my head. I like my house. I, I love my family. I've got two old cars that I'm crazy about. Um, you know, what more do I want? That's being rich right there. Yeah. That's, that's all I need. I don't, I don't, I don't need to, like, scrounge and go crazy tell me about your cars i'm not a car guy so i probably won't understand much of it but what what uh what kind of cars are you into um my current my current two i have a 1964 plymouth signet uh, plymouth valiant signet convertible okay with um with the 225 slant six the leaning tower power um the slant six is the the inline overhead cam six-cylinder that Chrysler developed in 1959 that remained in constant production until the early 90s. Wow. Um, super efficient. And the reason they call it the Slant 6 is that it was canted over 30 degrees to allow for a, sh- a-, a lower profile under the hood and a longer intake manifold. Uh-huh. So that's got the 225 Slant 6 with, in a rare instance... The four speed on the floor. Ooh. So that car is a lot of fun. Yeah, I bet. Is that a two door <laughs> or a four door? Uh, it's two door convertible. Right. Um, 
And then I have a 1950 DeSoto Suburban. They were making Suburbans in the 50s. It was a nine-passenger industrial vehicle. Whoa. um, That was made. It was mostly sold to, like, rarely to the family. It's like an early, like, you know. Like bread delivery truck? Minivan. Um, No, it was more for, like, human delivery. Oh. They would, hotels would use them as fleet cars. So you were a hotel, you've got to pick up, you know, you got some some guests coming in at the train station, you go to the train station, you pick them up, you throw the luggage on the roof, it's a nine-passenger vehicle, it's just a long wheelbase sedan. So it's a four-door sedan, just on an extra long wheelbase. So is the goal for Um, that vehicle to become the band tour wagon? It was a that was originally the goal with that vehicle was to become. But that would be cool. This has been, this has been the longest car like development ever <laughs> in the history. I, it's it's a really long and very boring story. Oh. But uh, but I just it's just now finally after almost twenty years drivable. Super cool. And I'm driving it around. It's really fun. So it's a suburban, it's, but not a Chevy. No. It's a DeSoto. DeSoto, DeSoto was okay. a Chrysler Corporation. So in the hierarchy of Chrysler at that time in 1950, Plymouth was your value leader. Then you had Dodge, which was a good, stable, well-engineered, middle-of-the-road, middle-American, you know, middle-class car. Then you had DeSoto, which sort of competed with, like, Buick. Okay. It was luxurious, but not the Chrysler. It was, you know, it had all the engineering panache and precision of the Chrysler, but it was not like it wasn't the, the you know, the, the greatness of the Chrysler. Then you had Chrysler, and that was sort of like the the kind of Cadillac. All right, you know, you know, top the top tier of the of the Chrysler Corporation. And then five years later, what had been the Chrysler Imperial Imperial moved to be its own mark. And that was sort of the Cadillac. I used to have one of those. I had a 60 Imperial for a while, for about 10 years. Wow. Drove across the country twice in that. That was fun. Wow. Yeah. That's a, so, that's a feat of physical agility to drive a car like that. What, no power steering, no power brakes across the country? Oh, the, no, the Imperial, the Imperial had power steering until the power steering pump blew in uh, Albuquerque. Oh. Um, but it had... Uh, <laughs> It had power steering, power brakes. Um, that car was a beast. Just a beast. It was so much fun to drive. Um, and surprisingly, because of the kind of the um, the suspension, it had what was called torsion bar front suspension. So it actually handled remarkably well for such a big car. Wow. You can't really say it had road feel, but it didn't. Feel, it didn't have that disconnected from the road feeling that a comparable Cadillac or Lincoln would not, have. Not that floating. You boat actually kind of feel. Yeah, it was responsive. It moved, and that thing could scoot. I mean, it was one of those cars that you'd be driving and talking to the person on the couch next to you in the front seat, <laughs> which was like a jet age sofa. And, you know, like atomic age, oh, blah, 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 blah. And then you look down and like, oh, my God, I'm going 100 miles an hour. And you back off. Like, okay, I'm going 70. And then you're talking, blah, 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 and you look down. Oh, my God, I'm going 105 miles an hour. <laughs> it just, that thing could just, 
fly. So much fun. And I could fit everything in that. Yeah. That was great. When you tour, do you just sing or do you play guitar and sing? I play guitar and sing. My stage instruments are are, mostly as guitar. I play some piano poorly, but I play it. Um, I play bass, but the bass player in the band is so friggin' good that even though I'll come up with the part and I'm like, yeah, this part's bitchin', then he'll come in and just play something a million times better, and I've I finally learned my lesson. Like, <laughs> Mike, you're just playing it. I'm 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 sorry. <laughs> it's so fun to play with musicians who are 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 that good when you can come to them with an idea and they just go like, oh, okay, they grasp it instantly and make it ten times better, and you're just like, ah, oh, I love you, man. Oh, it's well, especially the kind of stuff that I write. Like I write, I write a lot of things in, in odd times and very strange sort of structures, and they'll just, they just get it, very very quickly. <coughs> we did a, hold on one second. <coughs> we did a track on the last record, which was a concept record, um, and this one. It's hard to describe, but it keeps going between six and seven and, and all these sort of odd things. And I played them kind of the main riff, and I explained the structure, and Mark, the drummer, who I've worked with since 1996, Mark goes, oh, that's, he's from Bournemouth. He goes, that's great, that's great. Um, where's one? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> you know what? I don't know, <laughs> which... He's very used to. He's used to working with me. And he goes, all right. So we sat down. We figured out where one was. And then we figured out where, you know, like we wrote down the whole structure. And then we played it through, I think, on the third take. And we record everything here. On the third take, Mark and I, the drummer and I, we were like, oh, that was a good take. Like we nailed it. And Mike, the bass player, said, yeah. You guys had a really good take, but I think I want to redo some of mine. Let me just punch it in. And Mark literally put his arm around him, and he goes, no, man, we'll just do another take. Don't worry about it. And the next take, take four, was the keeper. And that was – we got the whole thing in 45 minutes. From the moment I started telling them, here's the lick, to the final take was just over 45 minutes. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. I love that. I love that about those guys. It's so much fun. When you write a song... And they're also like... Go ahead. uh, I was just going to say, they're also like... So we were doing... Like I said, it was a concept record. And the first sessions for it, for a confluence of weird reasons, I was was ill. I had pneumonia. But because we all have kids and we'd all carved out the time to do this, this was the only time... Like, I, we had set the sessions, and it's like, well, we're doing it. So I have pneumonia. I'm, like, in my bathrobe and pajamas in the studio. <laughs> I look like a cadaver. And on on the Friday night, it was the last session of the first – it was the last night of the first set of sessions. And we were working on what, what was the title track, and I said, <coughs> I want to try something. Let's try doing this as sort of like an Al Green kind of gospel feel, because it had been sort of a, a like a folk tune before that, very acoustic, right? And Mark, who was exhausted, and I was completely exhausted, and it's like midnight, and I mean, I'm at a complete low ebb. I can't even move out of my chair. I literally had to say to Mike, 
the bass player, can you just do me a favor and turn the reverb down on my amp a little bit? Because I can't do it. <laughs> I said, okay. So Mark said, you know what? I, I think I've got one take in me and let's just try it. But I, I'm not guaranteeing anything. I'm, I'm just toast. Okay. And that was the take. We did it one time. And we did it like the guitar, bass, and drums. It's live. That's just us playing in that moment. And I was, so, it was thrilling. And that's what I can, that's what those guys can do. That's really cool. You got to add that like as yeah. a, in, in parentheses in the liner notes on the album uh, is, <laughs> you know, played sick as hell on deathbed in studio. Yeah, there, we got, we got, Three, three of the uh, eighteen or nineteen tracks in that period, and one of them had like this. Really, there's a song called "Marchers," which look it up on YouTube because we did a video for okay. that. Um, the band is called Populux, P O P U L U X E, um, and the song is called "Marchers." And I hadn't written the middle. We kind of did a, a little bit. And I hadn't written the middle, and then when we, when I went and listened to it, I got this idea of doing this like really crazy sort of Zeppelin-y middle section. And the next day, I just turned to Mark and I was like, "I have this idea. I think it's going to work." But we go into eleven because the the tune is in five. It's a march in five. And I'm like, now we're going to go into. A six five six five six five figure, and then we're gonna do a kind of a half note triplet feel over that at the end of it, where we do this these sort of contrapuntal ascending and descending lines. And meanwhile, I have pneumonia. <laughs> it's like, and we're cracking up, like, yeah, we got to try doing this, and we nailed it. Wow, we nailed it. It's really fun. I'm, I'm, and uh, it was. So much fun to do. That's so cool. A concept album is yeah. an ambitious endeavor. Um, what, what kind of what, what was the what was the overall idea? What caused you to kind of go go after something like that? That's a cool idea. Not many bands are doing that these days. Um, we had on on Saturday, October twenty seventh, uh, two thousand eighteen. I woke up and there was in the news. Um, there was an attack on the Tree of Life Synagogue in Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh, which was right down the street from where my daughter used to live when she went to Carnegie Mellon. And I, I knew that synagogue. We, you know, we would drive by it, and that was the one that I liked. Um, and it really, I, I really can't overstate how profoundly painful that was. Um, and that night, a friend of mine posted something of people in Prospect Park in my old neighborhood in Brooklyn spontaneously gathering and singing Kaddish, which is the traditional prayer of mourning in, in Judaism. Um, it's this, this devotional prayer, and it, it shows up several times in a, ser- in a service, but at the end it's called the Mourner's Kaddish, and it's, it's the sound of sorrow to me. Um, when you're a kid, if you go to synagogue at all, you hear it at the end and you sort of see all these adults standing and they're crying. And it's, you don't, you know, you know something heavy is going on, but it's like, why are they crying? Sure. And then eventually as you get older 
it's you who stands because the mourners, whoever is in mourning, stands when you sing the mourner's Kaddish. And you are the one standing, and maybe you're saying Kaddish for your grandparents, your parents, friends, aunts, uncles, elders, whatever. And you get more and more experience with this prayer, and it it, it just kind of gets deeper and deeper and deeper. It's the, it's the feeling of sorrow. So people spontaneously singing Kaddish was profoundly moving. Um, and I wrote to him and I said, that's, that's the beauty in the broken place. And I was going to bed that night and I'm thinking, that's a title. That's not just a phrase, yeah. that's a title. So the next morning, I just was Sunday morning, I was miserable. And I started playing around with just revoicing kind of the central prayer of Judaism, which is called the Shema, um, and and kind of singing it, but revoicing the chords underneath it. And I thought, well, I'll use this and I'll call this beauty in the broken place. And then it like wouldn't stop. And at by that night, I realized, oh no, I'm writing a goddamn concept record. I don't want to do that. That's going to be a lot of work. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> like, that's a lot of effort. I really don't want to do that. But it kind of wouldn't leave me alone. Wow. And so I wrote a concept record. And so the whole thing, it's, it's two things kind of overlaid on top of each other. One is sort of the arc of the day told from all these different perspectives. So from the perspective of the people walking to synagogue on Saturday morning to the perpetrator to the the swell of things beginning to go wrong. Why are we bifurcating like this? What's what's happening? To the people who are there to help to you know and and then to the people who are actually killed. So it's trying to tell it from all these different perspectives without editorializing, just saying where each one is kind of coming from. Um, and at the same time, following the arc of the traditional Saturday morning service that I grew up in. So it sort of follows that same arc. That's really cool. And that's that's Populux? Is Populux, that yeah. And the album is called Beauty in the Broken Place. I'll check it out. That sounds really cool. I... yeah. I'm very um, uh, impressed by the idea and follow through of doing an entire concept record. That is, a, that is a chunk to bite off for sure. It it was well, you know, because we're we're not in dissimilar ages, right? So we grew up with like if you're going to make a concept record, it can't be like, and now I'm strumming my guitar and I'm saying this yeah. thing, and the next song sounds like just like this one, and la la la. It has to each song has to have its own character. Right. And somehow flow and lead into the next thing. And it's got to be theatrical. And it was like, oh, that's a lot of work. But each song has to stand alone, but be cohesive and tell a story without telling a story. Um, Yeah, that's tough. How how do you you approach songwriting? Do you like to start with lyrics or do you start with a riff and then add lyrics to it? It really depends. Like on on this one, on, on that record, I knew that I had I had an overall arc that I wanted to achieve. Yeah. So I, I understood there were things that I was going to need to write. 
I was going to need to write an entrance piece. I was going to need to write a first song that's a vocal song that's welcoming but also kind of foreboding, that hinted at what was to come but had one meaning the first time you heard it and another meaning once you know the story. I knew that there were there were things I was going to need to have that were just going to be theatrical devices. There were going to be things I needed to have that were going to be, that needed to be frightening. There were going to be things that I needed to have that were going to need to be kind of of a dual nature. So meaning that like, the char- the way it's being told and what is being said have a have a contrast to them. And that contrast gives them a kind of relief and a yeah. kind of almost like comedy, even though it's not funny, but it's almost like comedy. Like there's there's a contrast there that's that's odd and sort of vaguely ticklish. Um so that 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 created a theatrical arc. So there were things that I knew I needed to do. Other stuff, it's like, I'll just get a feeling. Yeah. You'll be writing, you'll be playing, and you just get a, like, oh, what is that? What is that? This is making me, what is that? And you got to chase mm-hmm. that. Whatever it is, you got to chase yeah. it. That's cool. That's cool. I'll go check out the album. It's it's on uh, streaming services, or where where's the... Uh... It is on your streaming services. It is, uh, it is available. It is, yeah, it's around. I would recommend, if you have the time... To uh, it's it's a little over an hour long. <laughs> it's, I know it's a chunk. It is definitely a chunk of time to be spent, but it's like a you know it's an ear movie. Yeah, listen to it all yeah, at once. No, this sounds very interesting. Yeah. I'm, I want to. I'm definitely going to listen. I have to a this. lot of respect for the attempt to do that, so I'm always interested to be like, okay, how did you approach it? And then honestly, what I'll do is I'll go through, listen to the whole thing, and then go back and listen to the whole thing again, and then, um, uh, you know, then you can kind of. Get a feel for the whole piece. Okay, now let's go back and and really dig into the individual elements of it. Once you know the over the overall story, um, that's always kind of fun. I'm still one of those guys that even though I subscribe to streaming services, when a band I love puts out a record, I'll still <coughs> buy the album and then sit and listen to the whole thing and go through the liner notes uh, while I'm listening to it. Um, I still like that. It's an old school thing to do, but oh, I love doing it. I do too. I mean, is there anything as great as falling in love with a no. record? No. no, it's 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 the it's like there are very few things in the world that are as like they just burrow into your into your life in ways that nothing else does except for like your children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and then to continue listening, and they constantly to them. come back up. Yeah, and as you as you keep listening to a song you've heard a million times or an album you've heard a million times, you'll still find little pieces of of things that you had missed or didn't notice or hear differently now. And that's, that's always cool. Especially when they're like really well done, then it's just, it's a never ending. I I mean, there are certain records that I, I can still listen to now that I've loved pretty much my whole life that I'll still hear new things. Yeah. Yeah. Even though I've, I've listened to them for eons certain records, certain artists, I'll just hear them and go like I I can't I still can't believe how good this is. Hey, speaking of kind of a sidetrack, but it made me think of when we talked about streaming services or all the million different ways of consuming stuff now, as far as listening to audiobooks, is there a service that you would prefer to send people to? Like if you meet someone and they go, "Oh, you're an audiobook narrator. I want to listen to one of your books." Do you tell them 
go to this one or go to that one or do you care? Is there any that are better to you or that you get behind more, that you like more? For the services themselves yeah. or for the titles? Well, for the services themselves. So a title that's maybe across all the major services, which there's only a few key ones, right? There's like Audible, Google has audiobooks, Amazon is Audible. Um, yeah. So are there any... I just send them to Audible because that's that's kind of the central repository. Yeah, all right. So they're not them, viewed as know. kind of like, oh, that's where everything is, but they're uh, maybe not so good to the artists or, or that sort of thing. Um, I don't know because I haven't put out my own stuff and so dealing with like revenue yeah. like that. I haven't dealt with that. I always try um, to be sensitive to that stuff by choosing a service. Like, okay, this one meets my need, but how are they to the people that I'm uh, – to the to the stuff I'm getting through there, you know, that kind of thing. Well, ultimately the best is always to buy a hard copy. Sure. Really, if you really want to be the most supportive of the artists you like, that's the best I do way. that, but I just can't um, buy books on tape. I used to be – my dad actually used to buy books on tape. He used to be a truck driver when I was a kid, and I remember he had these audiobook sets, which were like a little plastic briefcase, essentially, full of, you know, 14 cassette tapes. And uh, <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to do that anymore. <laughs> do they even <laughs> exist anymore? Not the cassettes, but they still do, do CDs. Really? And I argue, I mean, I know everybody's like, vinyl, vinyl. But CDs sound the best. They have the best dynamic mm-hmm. range, and they just sound, they're more consistent. They remain consistent. Um, I understand. I grew up with vinyl, too. That was the medium. It was very exciting. It's a lot of real estate on the cover. But CDs sound uh, sound better. They just have a broader range. Yeah, uh, I I think vinyl. I love vinyl in the in the experience sense. Like I love sitting down and throwing on a record, and then having to flip the record. The the manual, tactile element of listening to vinyl is fantastic. But yeah, the yeah. portability and sound quality of CDs is just it's just the best. Yeah. I mean, I still go for I, – I, I did have the opportunity to do vinyl. It would have been really expensive. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I've looked into that, It would too. have been like, a double album. Oh, no. Yeah. A double album, is that's a yeah. lot on vinyl to produce. Um, and I just was like, no, I'm just going to do a CD. And then, of course, everything shut down, and we haven't been able to tour it. Well – so selling them has been like near impossible. Uh, no, yeah, that that whole thing that yeah. the, the everything's been so changed and impacted. But one of the things I feel worst about is bands that rely on tour revenue. Um, how they were literally just just flipped off like a light switch. Um, yeah, because yeah, you can you know a lot of bands make good money selling uh, online, and I don't think streaming services are all that great for bands um, in general. But you know, bands make money touring, selling merch selling albums uh, to live crowds. And when that just went away, I think that affected so many bands. And so many bands I love, certainly in the punk rock world, um, are not major household names. So they really rely on that tour revenue. Um, So we've talked about it before, Derek, where when all that happened, I did everything I could and tried to... uh, I always bought physical albums when when someone put out an album I liked. (laughs) But I started going on and buying like merch and stuff from bands that I liked because that was kind of one way I thought, well, I can help support them um, while they're doing nothing, basically. But, yeah, that's really tough. That, that's that been a huge downside of the whole 
pandemic. Well, yeah. And, and Spotify certainly didn't help musicians either. Like you said, you know, that forced them to go on tour. Sure. And then when they lost the tour uh, revenue, they were really screwed then. Well, that was, you know, I've always had a, a very big skepticism, ingrained skepticism of the whole populist, everything's going to be great with X ethos, because it never is. Spotify was a terrible idea from the day it arrived. It basically said that, I likened it this way. Let's say you make pizzas. So Spotify says, okay, we are going to be the great pizza delivery system, but we're not going to make any pizzas. You have to have the oven, all the ingredients, all the experience in making pizzas, and you have to deliver us the pizzas, and then we are going to open the spigot for other people to have pizzas. And don't you want the promotion of your pizzas? So we're not going to pay you for the pizzas. We're going to be paid for the pizzas, but we are going to promote you, which is bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we are the content creators, and you don't have anything if you don't have our work. All you have is your hand on the spigot. That is it. And the idea that somehow we have elevated from in the last 15 years, we have elevated the person with their hand on the spigot to billionaire status is appalling. And when we talk about how the migration of wealth has gone upwards into smaller and smaller hands, we are the active participants in that. We can't sit there and go, it's big blank, it's big this, big tech, big whatever. It's not big whatever. It's we made them big. We said that was okay. It's not okay. The fact that you can have a million plays on Spotify and you get 17 cents or whatever is disgusting. Yeah. They don't make anything. Well, they don't make music. And the proof is in the pudding where so many artists, you just keep hearing big name after big name um, selling their music catalog. That's sad. Right. I mean, the only people who make music, uh, who make money from it now are people who were uh, who were famous then. Right. <laughs> or you become outrageously sure. famous. Yeah, yeah, the, the anomalies. You know, like a Billie Eilish, which is, you know, which is fine. But there's no, like, the idea of being a middle-class musician who goes out and gigs and plays and sells their wares, and that's what you do. And you're not rich, but you're not poor. You're not struggling like yeah. crazy. That's gone. But especially with the pandemic, almost, because, you know, playing live was still available. Yeah. So, like, yeah, the, the streaming services wrecked um, album sales. And uh, um, but you still had the avenue of touring. And playing to your fans. Even if you had a small following, you could play small clubs and make a decent living catering to that small fan base. Um, but with that turned yeah. off from the pandemic, um, it's it's really created a kind of a crap situation there. It's been yeah. terrible. We played we we were able to play one gig this past summer. And I have I have some autoimmune disorder, so I have to be really careful. 
and we were told, like, oh, yes, we have a mask mandate in place. Everybody must wear a mask. Nobody was wearing a mask. <laughs> yeah. Nobody. And it was just like, well, great. So we got to play one gig. And this is what, you know, granted, I'm lucky. I'm not complaining because I'm lucky in that for whatever reason, I set myself up early on for not being dependent on music to feed myself and my Well, that's family. just good planning. Yeah, because the music um, thing, like you said, it's a hobby. And if it works out, great. But for, uh, for the most part, you have to do it because you love it. Oh, God, I wish it were a hobby, but it's not. It's a flesh-eating disease. <laughs> it is. I, I can't escape it. There's no escaping it. If I don't make records, I am a miserable son of a bitch, which, you know, my wife is like, go make a record. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Uh, I love it. You know, because I just, I have to. It's just part of how I, it's part of my respiratory yeah. system. Um. But, you know, there are a lot of people who are not who are not set up for that at mm-hmm. all. And they their lives have been completely and utterly upended by this. They don't have something else. And I even even though I do have something else, I trained myself to be able to go on the stage with my instrument and play it and play it well. And you can't do that yeah. right now. And it yeah, sucks. I hope all that's gone. And, and you know, of course, they are still throwing shows in certain areas, but it's just not what it used to be. It's it's still weird uh, and underattended. Um, so I just, yeah, I can't wait till that comes back. I miss, I miss, I miss playing shows. Miss going to shows. Yeah, that's a big void. I just, uh, you know, what I miss probably more than anything, volume. Yeah, I miss being able to go onto a stage with my friends. And turn up my amp and play loud. Just that feeling of like, oh, there is a big, almost chaotic, but not. It's controlled, but it's almost chaotic, organized noise. (laughs) This is the best feeling in the world. Nothing beats it. No, it really doesn't. You know? Um, So music, audiobooks, um, uh writer also? I do write a lot. I mean, a songwriter. Um, that's probably my biggest writing. But I, I, I'm doing more and more sort of essays and and pieces that are you know here and there get published. So, and I've been I've been working on a book, but it seems like an odd thing to work on. How so? Well, I, because I'm first of all, I cannot write a piece of fiction. Despite the fact that I love fiction, I love Poe, I have loved it my whole life. If I try to write a plot, it is like sub-Hallmark movie level (laughs) plot. It's just terrible. I don't understand why I can't do it, but I cannot. It is not. So I can only write nonfiction, and the most nonfiction I've been working on for for off and on for several years, like a family history. Oh, that's cool. Because I'm fascinated with it. But it's, you know, it's, I'm not that fascinating of a guy. My family is fascinating to me, but anybody else looking at it would be like, okay, and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, that's really not that interesting. But what a fun project. Even so, I don't know. I think that uh, it's been pretty interesting listening to you <laughs> this, this whole time. Um, well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I think... Uh... Uh, the, the process of writing a book, well, similar to the the choice to make a concept album, I look at a book that way because obviously you need a beginning, middle, and end, 
and a lot in between. Mm -hmm. It all needs to be cohesive and flow and readable and so many things that it's a um, uh, intimidating thing to take on. And I've 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 thought I've I've stopped myself from going down that path a couple of times because I, I have a similar tendency to um, once I decide to do something, I become obsessed and consumed by it. And um, mm-hmm. I like that about myself because it's enabled me to do fun things and create cool things that I get to enjoy and hang my hat on forever. But I also have to be careful about what paths I allow myself to go down because um, it has to be a controlled addiction or, or decided addiction. Because if I just let my addiction flail around wildly, I'll never know. I don't know where the hell I'll end up. You'll be naked on a Yeah, corner. yeah. No, totally. Yeah, yeah that'll be me. Yeah. Um, You'll find yourself at, I don't know, 3 a.m. looking for trim for a 1950 DeSoto Suburban, <laughs> perhaps. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. that. Yeah, minus, minus a specific Or backspace sizing. I have that guy a million yeah. times, for sure, looking for the most obscure, yeah. weird thing that anyone else would raise an eyebrow at and go, what's wrong with you, dude? Yeah. That's pretty much my entire internal yeah. life. So when I... So my wife, like, when, when, when it was our 10th wedding anniversary... My wife surprised me. It was really beautiful, but she surprised me with the guitar, which was hilarious because she's always like, you are not getting any more guitars. Because <laughs> I got around it by starting to build guitars. Oh, wow. to, so that was how I sort of got around that, initially got around that prohibition. She was like, um, did I notice a neck come in the mail? And I'm like, well, yes. She was like, <laughs> okay. That is still buying guitars. You're just buying parts. No, no, yeah. You're like, no, no. It's not buying a guitar. It is buying a, a guitar yeah. part. It, it's a pickup. It's a it's a body. Yeah. It's an aspiring so, guitar. <laughs> so, uh, she bought a guitar, but the way she wanted to figure out like what kind of guitar I would want was by going on my computer when I wasn't around and looking at my my search history. Uh-oh. And so when she gave me the guitar, she was like, you are the most boring individual. (laughs) It's like it was really easy to figure out what kind of guitar to get you because that was 98% of your search history was car parts and hollow body guitars. Oh, my gosh. That's (laughs) awesome. And fixing them and painting them and like little teeny things about differences between magnets and all. I mean, just Mm -hmm. she was like, you are ridiculous. (laughs) That's a great wife right there. Yeah. She's pretty pretty incredible. But Man. Damn, Rob. I'm having a good time. I I could honestly hang out and, and talk with you for a long time. This has been a really fun conversation, man. This has been. Thank you guys so much. Where are you guys? I'm in SoCal. I'm in Riverside. Oh, I'm in I'm in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, Knoxville, Tennessee. How did you end up out there? Well, um, it's funny. Uh, My uh, we just moved from L.A. uh, pre pre pandemic um, and out of L.A. more towards closer to family. I have a lot of extended family here. And at one time, uh, both sets of my grandparents uh, lived out here. And this is where my parents met. So um, a lot of history in Knoxville uh, for some reason or another. But my uh, um, grandparents were originally from Richmond, and then at some point they moved to Knoxville. So I don't know. It's just kind of a hub for my family. Oh, wow. So are you – oh, wait. So your your grandparents from Richmond, Virginia? Yeah, originally. That's where my mother's side of the family came from. And then my father's side of the family was from uh, Rochester, New York. 
Ah, mm-hmm. that is deep north. Yeah, that's where I, Mike Mike uh, Populux, Mike Mallory, one of the greatest. Uh, honestly, okay, I'm gonna give a little plug for Mike and Mark from Populux. Forget about me. If there is one thing to listen to on those records, Mike and Mark are not to be believed. Those guys are as good as any rhythm section. I would put them up against any rhythm section currently or historically. They are that good. Mike is a remarkable player. He's from Rochester. And he's the uh he's the English um, guy? No, he's the uh Mike Mike is oh, the bass okay. player. He is Mike. That's I meant Mike. Um, he is from Rochester. He is the bass player. Mark Party is his name. He is from Bournemouth, England. Uh-huh. He is a saucy Brit um, <laughs> and a an absolutely brilliant drummer and one of my dearest. They're both like among my dearest friends. Mark and I, we've been, you know, like I said, we've been working together since 96. We started playing together in January of 96. Oh, wow. Which I have pictures of him with my then toddler like she was not yet a year now old. Now she's in law school. When he met my daughter. Now she's almost done with law <laughs> wow. school. Yeah, it's pretty it's crazy. It's amazing how time flies. I know it's such an old guy thing to say, but it's amazing how time flies where it doesn't feel like most things change and then all of a sudden you see some sort of a an obvious example of how long you've known a guy like that. Like, oh, here's a picture of you and my tiny one-year-old kid who's now about to graduate college. Oh, my God, I'm old. Yeah, who's now the same age I was when... My ex-wife got pregnant. That's with crazy. Her. I think that I see <laughs> pictures of my dad. Not like good. old pictures when I'm a kid, and I see my dad, and I'm like, I'm older than he is in this picture right now. Huh? I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> oh, I I see. Well, especially because I've been sick, you know, and I'm looking like a corpse. I'm like, oh, I now see the old man that is like <laughs> rapidly coming down the pike. Oh. You know, I'm like trying to avoid the mirror and it's not like, it's like not a Snapchat old guy filter or something. You can walk by a mirror. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not Snapchat. <laughs> that's what I actually look like. That's 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 the guy I am. It's frightening. Oh, but I do look I mean, somebody wrote yesterday that the difference between now and 1970, which I remember I was alive in 1970. It was three is the same difference as 1970 to 1918. And yeah. that was one where I went like, oh, my God. oh no. <laughs> oh, oh, that's very bad. Oh. That hurts. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. It is crazy yeah. that what we've all lived through, uh, the change in just, just technology or just the way we go about life, how different it was growing up, where we actually like played together in the streets, rode bikes for fun, um, just mm-hmm. how we did things before... You know, the, the super technologically advanced, social-dependent um, society that we have now, I'm so glad that we grew up and came of age before all that because uh, it just feels so different now. And I guess there again, it's kind of an old guy thing to say, but um, I don't know. It's just so different. It is very different. It's really interesting raising kids in this environment, yeah. um, as I'm sure, you know, we, we all have to go through. Um, I mean, you have really little, yeah. little kids, which going through the pandemic with really little ones, which also means that your your youngest was probably like right around the beginning of the pandemic, which was like, well, we got nothing better uh, to do. Yeah, he was a pandemic baby. <laughs> um, and there's a huge yeah, difference let's... in their life milestones. So like our first boy 
turned one about two weeks before shit hit the fan. Um, so February of 20, just a couple weeks before everything went to crap, uh, we had his first birthday, which was a monstrous gathering of, I don't know, probably 150 friends and family at a country club, and we were all getting together, and we had a, a, a Mickey Mouse mascot and all this. It was a giant get-together, <laughs> and smash cut to the first birthday of our second son, uh, right in the middle of the pandemic, where it's just kind of like, hey, your grandparents are here. Don't hug them. <laughs> yeah, it's it's... <laughs> It's Zoom. We're having it uh, over yeah, Zoom. Yeah. Oh, dude, we did Zoom stuff. We did his baby shower on Zoom. Oh, God. Oh, it's so hard. And then, you know, and Derek, for for you too, for as a seven-year-old, I mean, I'm going through that too. Seven-year-old, it's like, oh, most of your life has been dealing with this pandemic. It, it really has. And, um, you know, some of the – it's – yeah, the whole aspect of it. Like, I just – I want her to experience what I experienced – and um, it's very difficult to to make that happen. Um, Did, you know, she's she sits she has. There was a time uh, last year when she was just sitting at home for months, and um, you know, she's learned real quickly. She doesn't want to do that anymore. So yeah, uh, you know, we're, we're recently looking at private schools right now um, that are relatively safe and uh, and ho- hopefully uh, continue the school year. Uh, because I just want her to have some interaction with people, and uh, you know, it's 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 definitely a tough navigation. It's been very very tough. But uh, we all, you know, we I, this is my second round of COVID. But the four of us, my my wife, me, and our two youngest kids, um, we all caught it in September. And I, the only thing I would say is just be be aware that like. My youngest, who was the same as as your daughter, uh, when she caught it, she was the one who kind of let us know that, oh, my God, I think we have COVID. Because we were being really careful because of me, because of my my Mm -hmm. health issues. Um, So we were really locked down. Um, She came into our bedroom, and she's holding a fake flower. And she goes, Mom, Dad, I can't smell this. And we said, "Um, honey, that's because that's a fake flower. She's like, I know it's fake, but I had sprayed perfume on it, so it would be like a real flower, and I can't smell it. And my wife and I looked at each other, and we were like, oh, my God. I had been really sick, but we thought it was just an autoimmune flare. It was like, oh, I'm sick. It must be Tuesday. Um, But it turns out we all had COVID. My youngest ended up developing blood clots. Oh, no. Oh man. And had to have emergency surgery and we're basically on watch now. So it's, you know, it's not there's a lot of of misinformation about how benign it is. It is less benign than polio was. Mm. Polio is also a virus that was um obviously very contagious, but there were more people who are asymptomatic with polio or had a very light case of it. Uh, but polio could be devastating, and it was less devastating than COVID is. And we don't know how COVID behaves in the body over time. Part of the reason why I have autoimmune stuff is that I got Lyme disease as a kid in Connecticut. We didn't know. Nobody knew it was a new disease. So it was just like, oh, I just had some virus. I didn't even know I'd been bitten by anything. I just, at some point, I don't even know when it was. At some point, I at some sickness I had as a kid... I had for a couple of days, went to school, blah, blah, blah. Um, but what Lyme does and what viruses do is they live in your body for your lifetime. 
and they continue to mess with your system. Chickenpox becomes shingles. Lyme destroys your immune system or rewires it so that it doesn't function properly. We don't know how COVID's going to be. Yeah, how it kind of sits dormant waiting for some trigger or something to cause some new reaction. That's kind of how polio works, right? Yeah. you, You have it, and it may or may not rear its ugly head, and then it can be triggered by something like... Uh, and I'm b- basing that um, totally inept understanding of it off of a biography of Franklin Roosevelt that I read. Mm. And I was under the uh, wrong impression that he just had polio as a kid and was always in a wheelchair and, you know, uh, kind of went through the whole political process and became president. But he actually ended up um, having problems with polio, like, as an adult after he already began his political yeah. career. And yeah. When he was Secretary of the Navy, he was he was tap dancing away, practicing his clogging on ships across the Atlantic. <laughs> Doing the Charleston in those days, right? That's what they were yeah. dancing. And uh yeah. yeah, and so then he thinks, or the author thought, or or maybe common thinking is is that his polio was triggered by swimming in some lake or pond or whatever. Uh at least that's how this book spelled it out. Was that he was fine, but this thing was lying dormant in him. He went swimming in a lake, uh, went to bed that night, never walked again. Oh, damn. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, I'm with our kids. We basically have been like, it doesn't matter what anybody says. Just keep wearing a mask until this thing is yeah. gone. You know, just be careful. It's 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 worth it being careful. And it's incredibly upsetting to see all the misinformation being used politically and everything else. It's just, it's dumb. Yeah. It's just it, it, dumb. It is uh, exhausting how political this um, thing has become uh, twisted from every side and, and, uh, I'm sick to death of it. No pun intended. Yeah, it's horrible. I mean, I, I, again, because of my own health issues, I've been, have, you know, I've had to be really careful. And my daughter came, you know, to be with us over the, you know, over the holidays. Um, and of course, people have just decided, well, I've had enough of masks. Masks are dumb. It's my freedom not to wear a mask. You're going to, you you know, you know, I, and whatever these sort of crazy notions are that, like, if you wear a mask, you're going to inhale Beelzebub or whatever the hell people think is going to happen if you wear a mask, right? And some guy is breathing down her neck at the grocery store, and she turns around and she says, excuse me, can you just back up? He's not wearing a mask. Can you back up and, like, put your mask on? And he says something rude to her. Another guy is on the plane pulling down his mask to cough. Oh. And then putting his mask back up, and she's like, "Pardon me, can you, can you keep your mask covered while you cough into this stagnant ambient air?" And he, you know, he says something rude to her as well, and says, "Well, I'm eating, and there's nothing on his tray. Yeah. There's nothing there." Mm-hmm. Um. Finally, uh, she gets it, and she passes it to me. COVID wasn't a problem for me. COVID was fine problem was i have autoimmune diseases and that are you know i had nothing to do with it just ended up i just ended mm-hmm. up getting them because of that i get covid i have to stop taking the immunosuppressant drugs stopping taking the immunosuppressant drugs means that my immune system goes absolute haywire because it recognizes oh my god there's covid oh my god i've seen this before attack and it goes on a full throttle attack but because my immune system doesn't work, it doesn't attack COVID. It attacks me. Wow. 
Right. So yeah, you, I, I had COVID, uh, about a month ago and, and when I got that attack that you're talking about, like all my joints ached, is that what you experienced? Something along oh, yeah. those lines? Oh yeah. Mm. Joints ached, horrible headache. I mean, I had COVID classic when it was on vinyl. <laughs> um, and I just had, I think I had Omicron and Omicron, you know, the COVID itself wasn't a problem. It was what it triggered afterwards. Yeah. And I'm still really struggling. I mean, this is the longest conversation I've had <coughs> in in weeks. I've lost all of January. Wow. Um, I haven't been able to work. Uh, you know, I'm lucky because because I'm lucky. But um, if like I'm right now not in a position to get like the flu or anything else because it's basically as if my body my body's exhausted from this frenetic fight against in quotes covid but it's also exhausted from from covid not being covid covid was my actual body so it's like i'm both the firefighters who were fighting the forest fire for a week straight with only an hour's sleep and the forest itself. And I'm just utterly depleted. It's, 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 I've never experienced anything yeah. like it. I don't really know how to, how to navigate through it. It's been really. It, it, not, it exhausted me as well for, um, you know, I, I had a fever for about two days and I overcome that. But then, uh, yeah, for, I didn't know if I was going to get my energy back, if that's any um, consolation to what you're going through now. But it was a good two weeks before I finally started feeling like, I, okay, I, I think I have my energy back. And now I finally do have my energy back. And it's really given me a gratefulness to have my energy back. I, I can imagine. Because, you know, yeah. you, as we all are, we, we don't appreciate what we have and we don't appreciate our health and we don't appreciate our life. But when you do have it and you realize that it's, you know, that, wow, this is real, I might actually lose uh, my energy for quite some time. Um, only then does it hit you that how appreciative, obviously, you know, that we are that we don't have it. Well, it turned the my mom had a lot of autoimmune diseases as well. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And basically the end of her life was for whatever reason, something was triggered and all of her autoimmune issues came to a head at once and it overwhelmed her system and she died. And that was that. And I'm sitting, I'm sitting there going like, that is, I, I won't die from COVID. I'll die from what it triggers. And it was, I don't really get that scared of anything. Um, but there were moments that it was like, I, I wonder what's going to happen here. And I wonder if my, you know, what, what do I do? I've got young children and I cannot get out from under yeah. this. Like I can't control it. Um, mm. And they were all sort of battling. And it was like, it's hard to describe, but um, autoimmune is really weird because it is, it's, mm. it's just your body is attacking your immune system is attacking your body hard, 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 hard. And this was like my immune system recognized, oh, go hard. This is full, you know, you know, five alarm. Go, 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 go. Wow. 
but it wasn't firing at COVID. It was firing at wow. me. That's a, like so, that cytokine storm. Yeah. Uh, kind of, yeah. Exactly. And so every, every autoimmune issue that I have, every area of weakness that is attacked in the past, every single point was being attacked as hard as it's ever been attacked. And so it was just, I, it's hard to describe, but it was like, uh, like drowning. Wow. Like there's, there's no escaping this. Um, I'm getting that's better. good. <laughs> I'm having a conversation you with sound you guys. Good. I mean, so yeah. Yeah. man, this is the this is the first time I've had like an actual like I I'm beginning to feel like myself. Yesterday was the first day I turned to my wife and I was like, "Is it me or am I looking a little less cadaver like?" <laughs> She's all a little. <laughs> she was like, "No," and I and then I said to her, "Remember when I used to be attractive?" And she was like. You will be attractive again. <laughs> oh, man. I love that. Yeah, you don't ask her, hey, do I look good? No, no, I'm not even shooting that high. Do I look less terrible? <laughs> well, she's like, her thing is, she'll say, I'll say, um, do I look okay? And she'll like, not when you make that face. <laughs> Which is like, you know, the eyebrows up, like, do I look The, the, the right? crinkled, inquisitive <laughs> facial expression? Yeah. Not when that's the face you're wearing. No, <laughs> look like a normal person asking a question. Then maybe <laughs> when you, you relax do. and smile. Sure, but now, eh. yeah. she's really funny. When we we had it the first time together. This last time she didn't get it, and neither did the kids. Um, but when we had it the first time together, it was the weirdest thing. We laughed so much because it was so absurd. The idea that like I can't believe we got COVID and we were really sick. But it was hilarious. I mean, it was horrible, but it was hilarious. And we just spent all this time, like, we'd be lying in, in bed, like, crying with laughter, you know, and still unable to do anything. Yeah. But we would just be, like, laughing so hard. It was really fun, <laughs> It was a great time. It was a blast. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It was. It was. A, it ended up being this, like, really bizarrely enjoyable like the last thing you would expect but it was an enjoyable well we will all have to tell stories to future generations about this uh, because we will be the generation that went through the pandemic um so you've got a nice set of stories you know that story uh the connection with your wife and the funniness and i love the story about your daughter walking in with the fake flower saying i can't smell this that is <laughs> i love that i'm gonna tell my wife that yeah she's my my youngest is really pretty hilarious. Actually, all my kids. Uh, one of the things all my kids know that their job is, more than anything else, is they have to know how to make me laugh. <laughs> A, because it'll get them out of most trouble, which they know. They know if they can really crack me up, whatever anger that I have will be pretty quickly dissipated and we'll just get to the point where it's like, okay, yeah, I'm in trouble, but at least like, I'm not, dad's not really mad. So they all know that and all four of my kids are really funny. Well, that's a good life skill to be able to uh, yeah. uh, round off the edges of a tough situation with a good sense of humor and, and a well-placed joke. Um, that'll benefit them in the long run. So that's that's just that's just good parenting. That's solid. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. No one can punch you when right? they're laughing. At least not hard. It makes it harder to really pack a punch for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They don't want to because you might make them laugh again, and everybody yeah. loves laughing. Yeah, it's the no. best. Nothing beats oh, laughing. Oh man! Well, damn, Rob, this has been a really great time, man. It's fun to talk to you. 
This has yeah. This has been a real pleasure, guys. Um, let yeah. me know what you need from me with you know however you need me to send oh, oh, this. Or uh, this I is mean, going to be a very yeah. Just send large... me an audio file, MP3, wave, whatever's easy for you. Um, send it through okay. Gmail or um, like Google Drive or whatever works. Whatever works for you. Just shoot me the audio yeah. file. It's gonna have to be like a high tail because this is gonna be like many. It's going to be a couple. It hundred will be, yeah. It will be large. Uh, Derek sends me a gigantic yeah. half gig wave at the end, and at the end of every one of these, and uh, yeah, that works fine. This one is our longest <laughs> show ever, right, All Derek? Right. Yeah, yeah. This yeah, I can't I believe it's so. been two and a half hours. I'm yeah. having a great time. It went oh by fast. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> I can't either. Man, I can talk a lot. I'm a big talker. <laughs> Do you have any audiobooks to record today, or did we pretty much uh, take all of your your speech? I- I do, I do, and I'm uh, I'm going to take a little, like I'm going to take about a half an hour and get my, drink a little coffee and get my voice back together and you off we ha- go. This will be my first day really properly awesome. in the booth. Awesome. Since since getting yeah. sick. What, so, what do you, you don't have to say the title, yeah. but what are you working on? What kind of, what kind of book? Um, this one is a, it's informational. Um, it's basically marriage advice from a guy who got divorced and is basically like oh my god did i ah. screw up let me tell you how i screwed up so you don't screw up so the same way and he's got a real it's great he's got a really interesting sort of take on it he's not proselytizing like i'm so great i have all the answers but like i really 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 screwed up so here's up. a book about what let not me tell to you do. how all right. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> and and uh, and he's got a really kind of funny, snarky voice. So it's right. great. I I really like that. It. Sounds it's like a, a fun one, one to approach. Kind of a lighthearted, um, uh, not too, not too deep, sort of just kind of a yeah. Snarky is a fun one. That that kind of an edge. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm uh, I'm looking forward to doing it. I've been trying to get in the booth to do it and i just it's been stuck on a podcast all day (laughs) (laughs) well today's literally today's the first day that i've been up and not feeling like i got to go right back to bed Um, well that worked out i mean i just got a note i got a note because i did another another audio test yesterday and they're like you know the level's really low and i'm looking at the level and i'm like it shouldn't be but then i realized oh it's low because i had absolutely no energy (laughs) at all and I have a little bit, so. Well, cool, man. Well, cool. Well, think it, it, it's really been a great time, um, and we really appreciate you spending the time to come on and hang out and uh, chat with us for so long. This has been cool. Likewise, yeah, this has been great. Um, yeah. I, like I said, let me know yeah. what you need me yeah. to do. This has been a huge pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Thank you, I Rob. Hope I didn't talk your oh, damn Oh no, ears we off. enjoyed every minute of it. <laughs> no, it was very yeah. enjoyable. Thanks so much, Rob. And and hope you continue uh, feeling better. Good, and good luck, luck with, with everything. Bo- we'll keep an eye out for the new book, and and I'm gonna go check out the album too. That sounds rad. The concept album. Yeah, check out the album, and then we start recording the new album uh, in three weeks. Three weeks from this weekend, we're in the studio to very to cool, cut man. The new we'll one. keep an eye out for it. Yeah. yeah. All right, man. Thanks, Take Rob. care, you, too, you guys. Man. Okay. Thanks, Rob. Bye. All right. Bye, bye. <laughs> My loins, my loins are repopulating the earth. Hey, this is Mike. Thanks a lot for listening. We really hope you're enjoying the show. We have a great time doing it for you. Uh, hit us up on Twitter at Derek and Mike Pod or on our website, DerekandMike.com. 
And uh, don't forget to subscribe or follow the show in your podcast app. That would be super cool. Helps us out a ton. And it also makes sure that you get notified every time we put out a new episode. Also, if you know of anyone else who might like the show, share it with a friend. Tell someone who might dig it. That would be super cool. We'd really appreciate any support you can give us. Uh, We really appreciate you. And we can't wait to talk to you next time. And until then, have a good one.